Hello again, friends. And you are my friends. And welcome to another edition of 605, the Super Podcast. The only podcast on Turner Time. The Mothership! The best wrestling podcast on the planet. The only wrestling podcast that matters. The most influential wrestling podcast. Call somebody. I'm your host, the great Brian Last. It's me! The hardest working man in wrestling podcasts. Yeah! Baby, baby! You know, someone recently called me the Weapon X of wrestling historians, which may be the greatest <laughs> compliment I've ever received in my life. And uh, I'm very happy to welcome back to the co-host chair someone who hasn't been in it in way too long, and unfortunately will only be in it way too briefly today, but that is your friend and mine, Jimmy Cyclone, Rockin' Jerry Brown. He has more names that make me smile than anyone else in wrestling history, and that is your friend and mine, Vandal Drummond himself, Kurt Brown. Kurt, welcome back to the show. Hare Krishna, may Yolanka the space the deity bless you with his, her gender shifting and pacifying gun. Yes, baby. How are you tonight? You know, it really makes me realize how much I miss you <laughs> when we open the oh, show. Like I that. miss you guys too. You are the, as, as has been stated, as has been stated pre- previously, you are the weapon X of wrestling historian, and that's proper. <laughs> and the reason is because the 605 Super Podcast is art and the true definition of art is complete annihilation of the soul and that is exactly what this show does for the wrestling history to be told kayfabe must die first you have annihilated you did the last step history is being written (laughs) i love having you on the fucking show (laughs) but let me say i did say unfortunately that you would be with us briefly today and then it really has nothing to do with you i've been trying to get you on the show again for a little while unfortunately kurt retired and then became busy i don't know how that worked but (laughs) as kurt i'm sure will tell you kurt's been doing a lot of things traveling around also doing a lot of work so he will be on the show more regularly soon but kurt's been just very busy right kurt I have been had that uh, had that vacation. I'm I'm a domestic bitch now. I cook, I clean, I do all that stuff, and um, I'm having a great time. But uh, likewise, I have missed you and I and the Super Five podcast. Super. <laughs> The Super, the Super 5, Five Podcast, yes. <laughs> arose by any other name, if it's a Pod 605 CAD post, uh, I, lo- I have missed that too. So, uh, And just want to do a note to all the 605 folks that I communicate with. I know I haven't been quick getting back to people, and I want to apologize. Our, our desktop uh, gave the ghost recently, and so all I have is my phone. But in a few days, we should have a new desktop up and running, and my fingers will fly a lot more free, 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 freely. <laughs> well, well, I can't wait to uh, have your fingers flying freely more often here on the program. But yeah, I never, I never realized before. I just said it. I never realized that "freely" is a six-syllable word. <laughs> well, I, I guess either did I. But I said briefly you'd be with us, and the reason is this wasn't the original intention for this show. This show was primarily done. What was originally going to be episode 89, Scott Cornish in the co-host chair. We did an entire top 10 with all your favorite top 10 characters. And then in production, uh, the last couple of days, actually, I realized I wasn't pleased with the way everything came out. It wasn't what I thought was appropriate to be released. 
I thought we could do better. I thought I could do better. So I have scrapped that entire episode. I've said that all of that will not be released, and we're going to do this instead. Kurt, you're going to be here. I'm going to take most of the original segments that were going to be on that show. We'll use them here. The Tim Hornbaker segment that was originally going to be on episode 90. I'm moving it up. It's going to be here in episode 89. So for all of you who hear me on the Jim Cornette experience this week as this show comes out, announcing what episode 90 will be, it won't be that anymore. Because the Tim Hornbaker segment will now be on this episode, but that's where we're at. So uh, a couple other notes regarding that. As the Easter egg for today, I'm going to include a little bit of me and Scott from that original episode talking about some music stuff that I found funny. Check that out as the Easter egg. And also Ramsor Records, of course, the, the sponsor, excuse me, I can't speak, of the top 10 uh, we will not be having a top 10, but we did record their spot. So I'm going to use that spot here. They are going to be the sponsor of the entire episode. Ramsor Records sponsors this episode of the Super Podcast, and we'll be playing that shortly. But that's where we're at. I just, you guys know what my policy is. All my shows come out on a regular schedule. With Super Podcast, it's a whole different animal. This is my baby. This is my art. This is my body of work. And if I'm not happy with the finished product, no one else is going to fucking hear it. So that's where we're at, and hopefully I'm happy with Kurt Brown. And when we're done with today's recording, <laughs> I hope you're and, happy with him too. <laughs> and we'll release it. But that's where we're at, Kurt. And we have a really fun show, a really packed show. But that's why the show has been well. This episode specifically took several days longer than I originally intended for it. It's because I just wasn't happy with the way things came out, and I finally made the decision that I wasn't going to release it as is. And here we are doing a retake the night before, or a redo the night before. And away we go. And away we go. Well, a few few notes here, uh, Kurt. I want to say a few things. I want to uh, thank a few people. I want to thank Jace Nakarado. He's been helping out with some stuff behind the scenes. Thank you, Jace. I want to thank Christopher Albright, one of our loyal listeners. He just sent me a bunch of Nolan Ryan baseball cards when he was on the Mets, and I very much appreciate it. I actually do have a collection of Mets baseball cards that I've been collecting ever since I was a kid, a giant box somewhere in this house. Uh, so thank you very much, Christopher Albright. I very much appreciate it. And I also want to thank Frank the Collector. We've mentioned him in the past. He has sent in various things to myself, to Scott Cornish. Who knows who else he has sent things to? I want to thank him. He sent me a vinyl single of the Junkyard Dog and Vicky Sue Robinson Grab Them Cakes. I would also like to thank the U.S. <laughs> Postal Service for breaking that record in half before I actually oh, no. open the fucking envelope to get it. But uh, I know people at the post office. I'll be calling Jamie Ward to file a complaint. But uh, once again, thank you, Frank the Collector. I do appreciate you sending another fine item for my growing collection of weird wrestling items. I got some really cool ones recently. I got a Roy Shire pencil with an eight ball eraser. Oh, my God, that's cool. Yeah. What's the coolest thing in your collection? I once saw, do you still have... I once saw a picture, I guess it would have been you in your apartment years ago, maybe 30 years ago, Kurt, but Mm -hmm. you had like a tiger mask figure. Yes, I had gotten that many, many years ago. Um, There's a store that's very famous in Hollywood in the Los Feliz district called Wacko. It used to be one of the stores on Melrose in Hollywood, and they just had offbeat stuff. And even back before Lucha was cool uh, to the, you know, gringo audience, like in the 80s, they would sell wrestling masks, and uh, they used to have those little uh, tiny Japanese wrestling dolls. You know, like the little rubber muscle dolls you'd get in the gum machine? Yeah, yeah. I I, I don't have the tiger mask anymore. Um, 
the coolest thing I have in my collection. I don't have it readily available, but what I'm planning on getting like me a man curio soon. Uh, <laughs> and amongst the coolest things that will be in that curio are my wind up giant Baba doll where you, uh, not, you'd not wind up but a little button where you push it and he goes around chopping things with his arm. Beautiful. There is my bottle of Monsel's powder, which I treasure really greatly. I still have my Freddie Blassie paper mask that I bought at the very first show at the Olympicatorium I went to in 1973. These were essentially oval-shaped pieces of cardboard with a wrestler's picture on it, and like right under their eyes, two squares are cut out, so you can put rubber band it around your head and go around saying, "Hey, look, I'm Freddie Blassie. I'm Ernie Ladd." Yeah, who did that? How many people? I have in the no Olympic idea, but I did that. <laughs> And it seems like the most ludicrous thing, but I bought it, and I, I know I still have it to this day. And uh, other cool things, I have the Frank Gotchen, uh, uh, the Frank uh, Hackenschmidt. Oh, I was remembering the outlaw wrestler, Gockenschmidt. Um, <laughs> the Frank Hackenschmidt card. Now, if there was a Gockenschmidt baseball card, that would be the coolest thing ever. You mean Gotch Hackenschmidt? Yeah, Gotch Hackenschmidt, yes. And his brother, Bula. <laughs> They do their Hindu squats, yes. What about and, Tiger uh, Jogindar Singh? Tiger Jogindar Singh! <laughs> thousands and thousands of Hindu squats for days at a night on a mountaintop. I'm telling you, the angel fights the devil for years on end, all by doing Hindu squats. Dr. Jerry in Memphis, that's something we never got to experience. Ooh, he would have been so key. How do you that think he would have done in a studio wrestling setting? Seriously. I think he would have felt right at home. Because getting him on the mic is what mad is magic. I, I remember in Harley Race's autobiography, at some point he referenced uh, Dr. Jerry Graham's interviews as stream of consciousness projects or something like that. <laughs> so studio wrestling would have been home to him. He would have loved it. Well, a few more notes here occurred at the top of the show. I want to mention to everyone, we now have Mothership bumper stickers. There's a Mothership sticker set. You get a Mothership bumper sticker, two Mothership circle stickers, as well as the hot dog sticker. You can get those at tinyurl.com slash store, along with all other t-shirts, stickers, magnets, and everything else we have there. tinyurl.com slash store. Get your Mothership bumper sticker today i gotta mention this too i recently heard on the radio i was driving around and one of the great things about living here in north jersey is i have direct access to wfmu 91.1 free form radio this has been a weird and awesome radio station going it's back. it's a great to station yeah and you know it's one thing picking it up over the internet it's another thing we could actually listen to it in your car it's really really cool and i was driving around listening and a song came on and it was one of those things where I listened to it. I liked it. I didn't pay attention to the lyrics, but I hit Shazam on my phone so that whatever the song was, I would have the name of it and I could buy it later on. Well, it turns out the DJ plugged the song at the end of it and he said, and that song is dedicated to Stan Stasiak and Ox Baker. It's from the Mighty Jabronis. It's called Heart Punch My Heart. I love it. And I love the song. I bought it. Oh. I actually bought it on vinyl, too, and I just want to give them a plug here. Check that out. The Mighty Jabronis, Heart Punch My Heart. If you're into mm -hmm. good old punk rock, check it out. I did like it, 
And uh, I believe Scott Cornish told me the host of the show was Toddophonic Todd, Todd Abramson on WFMU. So uh, check that out. Once again, the Mighty Jabronis, Heart Punch My Heart. What a catchy title that is, Kurt. You know, I'll have to ask Pat Howard if he still has the tracks when he was in the band Foreign Object uh, that he did with the late Stephen DeLeon that had great songs like You Ain't Nothing But Garbage. Um, and Stefan used to cut great promos on the audiences at the matches. He'd go full-fledged heel on them uh, to the point where occasionally somebody would want to take him on in the ring. <laughs> <laughs> well, a couple more things, Kurt, and this is a little bit on a downer note, but I wanted to make reference to a couple recent passings, and we have had a lot of recent passings in professional wrestling. So many. Way too many. Way too many. Every day I feel, I feel like we wake up and I see a couple more. As we're recording today, Jim Jameson, longtime Memphis undercard wrestler, has passed away. I just saw that. Viano 3, or I guess you're supposed to call him Viano Tres, but I've always called him Viano 3. <laughs> he just passed away. I actually know that Lucha has seen a bunch of legends die in the last few months. Way too many, way too many. Viano Tercero was, uh, he was the nucleus of the Vianos, and I didn't realize that until I started going to Tijuana regularly in between 89 and 91. And every time the Vianos were a trio, it was specifically the Viano Tercero who was over. He, like to me, they were three Vianos. And if I watched them Week after week after week, yeah, I could tell them apart. But to me, here's three masked guys coming into the Pink Panther theme song. And it's it, just amazing. The people love this guy. If they tore at his mask and he he loved to juice the shit out of himself. He he was like part of the Abdul of the Butcher Club. Uh, the fans just went ape shit over this guy. And I know he's come close to getting to the Observer Hall of Fame. Uh, he's somebody who should have been automatically put in there. That guy was a draw on his own as a draw as a trios uh, participant. Um, yeah, it's it's a real bummer. One of the things we need to look at doing more on the show about in the next year would be some Lucha history. So you and I will be speaking more about that in the future here. Because yeah. it's something I have thought about, especially with all the recent passings of some of the legends of Lucha Libre. Budokan. 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 Yeah, yeah, I've been talking to you since Budokan passed away. What did you think when you I, heard the news? I was heartbroken. We had just lost Gil Ariano, who ran Gil's gyms for, year, for years. And that was a blow. And then uh, I feel especially bad, bad because I didn't get a chance to visit him before he passed. But um I mean, he lived a good life, 77 years old, uh, had a lot of friends, you know, uh, made a lot of claims, some of which were true and some of which weren't, <laughs> but, but I, but he was, he was one of the most genuinely kind people that I've known, especially, especially when you're in indie wrestling and everybody thinks they're a bigger deal than they are. He is one of those guys who was just, he was nice to everybody, whether you were, a new kid wandering into the dressing room or an old pro and um and a couple of people i'd just love to mention they're not people i don't think listeners would uh recognize but in 2018 lost uh dan daniels who was uh tom hankins tag partner this is perry reed and um a man by the name of Stuart Shaning, who was somebody I was friends with back to the 80s. And he was somebody who you wouldn't recognize his name because he didn't read newsletters. He wasn't like super into wrestling. He was like one of those teenagers who got really into WWF when it took off 
you know, na- nationwide the eighties. But the cool thing was he always wanted to see my Japan tapes and he really got into them. He didn't start like taking the observer or anything like that. He didn't get super into into wrestling, but he always wanted to see my Japan stuff, especially stuff with Brody and uh, Fujinami. Um, he passed away a little too young. He had been in bad health for several years, but um, I just want to give him a salutation. His brother, Steve, is the one who I did that Dr. Jerry Graham interview with in 1984. And um, not to get too sentimental, but you know, just at these men's passing, I just want to read uh, just a quick passage by the uh, Australian philosopher, Lord David Dundas. When I wake up in the morning light, I put on my jeans and I feel all right. I pull my blue jeans on. I pull my older jeans on. You and me will go motorbike riding in the sun and the wind and the rain. <sighs> I know that passage has gotten many of us through a rough time. <laughs> <laughs> we have to forgive me. I, I didn't. I wasn't prepared for that passage. But on that note, I actually wanted to mention a couple other people who recently passed away, and they didn't get a lot of attention. But I could say that when I stop and I think about them. They both had an impact on me, so I want to make a reference here or make a mention of it. Uh, one is Coach Kurt Schneider. Never met the guy. I only knew him as Coach Kurt. He had Coach Kurt's wrestling line, 976-1111 in New York. I believe in Chicago and Detroit, it was 976-6363. And this was really great, Kurt. In the early 90s, when I was in high school, at lunch, I can go to the payphone and for a quarter, call Coach Kurt's wrestling line and get all the news that hadn't arrived in the Observer to my house yet. It would oh, get, that's cool. It would get to him in Michigan or wherever he lived before it would get to me in Long Beach, New York. So every single day you can call and get the latest wrestling news. And it wasn't just what was in the Observer. He clearly had other sources because he would break news. I would hear things on the Coach Kurt wrestling line before I would hear it anywhere else. And like I said, every single day for at least a year, at least when I was a freshman, Every single day, I put a quarter in that payphone to call Coach Kurt's wrestling line, 976-1111, and I just heard that he passed away at 67 years old on August 9th, so I wanted to make a mention of it here. I know he was a part of the Midwest wrestling community, a part of Motor City Wrestling, and probably various other independent outfits in the area, so Coach Kurt Schneider, Coach Kurt's wrestling line, uh, rest in peace. And again, that's what I really dig about this show is, man, you're giving the most three-dimensional history of wrestling here. It's not just the wrestlers and promoters you're covering. You're covering fans, hangers-ons, people who did odd jobs, uh, newsletter writers. You know, this is showing the, showing the biz in every viewpoint possible. One more I want to mention here, and this one I was very, very sad to hear about, but Brian Danovich passed away. Uh, that's a name that I would guess most of you don't know. He would be best known for appearing on one of the versions of Tough Enough for the WWE, the one where oh. they, they were out on the beach. He tore, I want to say he tore his bicep. Uh, excuse me. Actually, I believe it was his chest. He tore his pec. And that way, uh, and because of that, he wasn't able to finish the competition. So they gave him a contract, but I don't believe things worked out for him there. Uh, I feel really bad about this because I actually knew him back when we were teenagers. I think I'm actually the person responsible for getting him going with wrestling school. Uh, I could be wrong, but I believe that's true. 
he was someone I met when I was about 15 or 16. I was at a convention with Georgie and Macropolis and some other people, and he was with another group of people, and I started talking to him. He was also from Long Island. He was maybe a year or two younger than me, and you know, when you meet someone who lives near you and they like wrestling, and you're a kid, you can't wait to talk to them, and me and him became fast friends. We hung out a lot. He was in the car with me when we picked up Tracy Smothers, a story I told way back on the show. <laughs> when I was a teenager and Tracy Smothers stayed at my house when he worked in the garden, Brian Danovich was in the car with us when we went to LaGuardia Airport to pick him up. He was so nervous, we had to get a plastic bag. He started puking in the bag. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. He was such a big wrestling fan, and it wasn't like me. He wasn't really into like finding Japanese tapes or older tapes. He grew up on WWE and his dream was, or WWF, and his dream was to be a WWF wrestler. And he acted like it even when he was young. When he was in high school, he was on the wrestling team and he was a big kid. He would send out autograph photos to people. He sent me one, you know, I keep watching for the future. He very much developed his own professional wrestling personality and character as a teenager. And there were times where it just, you know, I I think professional wrestling may have had too much of an influence over him where, you know, I remember one time he had a girlfriend who, uh, you know, (laughs) he ended up, they had a great time. They were together. They were at a great time. And then he was watching ECW and he called her up and he gave her this Raven promo about how he wants her to feel his pain. And I believe she like (laughs) called the cops. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was a long time ago, but it was, uh, it was pretty interesting, but He was a good guy, a really nice guy, a a big fan of wrestling. He made a lot of decisions when we were younger that, you know, looking back now, like he, if I'm going to be honest, he got into steroids when I would never even consider it. I mean, there was a time we actually talked Mm -hmm. about becoming a tag team together, breaking into the wrestling business and, you know, doing it together because we were friends. But and then I realized there's no future and we're in the wrestling business. You're very wise if you're going to be a wrestler and it's there's other things in your life besides wrestling. Do it for kicks on an indie level. (laughs) It's a rabbit hole that you have to embrace 100 percent. And you wanted it to be a career. And unfortunately, I think for Brian, there was no other option. It was he was going to be a professional wrestler. He was going to be a WWE superstar or bust. And for one reason or another, and I don't know all the reasons, it didn't work out. The last time I saw him was when I was about 21 or 22, and I was running the sales department at what was then the largest fitness center on Long Island, and he was about to go to Les Thatcher's training school. I had gotten him in there, and he came to say goodbye, and it was right when Sid Vicious broke his leg on Nitro, because he brought the oh. tape to show me, and we watched it, we talked about it, and then I didn't hear about him or hear from him for years. No heat or anything. We just had distance. And I that just happens. And I just heard from him several times in the last few months. Um, you know, he had messaged me. He had been listening to the show. Uh, I know he must have been living at home with his parents because he sent me a phone number. And it was a phone number I actually remembered from when he was oh. a kid growing up in Belmore. So I know he had a difficult time. But uh, very, very sad to hear about his passing. A very nice guy. Someone I was very good friends with uh, during my teenage years. and. Um, I feel I'm very sorry to hear about that, man. Yeah, I feel really, I feel really bad. You know, I feel really bad. I, I, from what I gather, I did a little bit of research after I heard the news because I was very upset. You know, whenever you hear about someone mm-hmm. you, you knew when you were younger dying, you're like, what happened? Like, what? How did they end? Oh, up absolutely. There? And I guess he's had a, a a rough time in the last few years with medical issues. But once again, Brian Danovich, Long Island friend of mine from my early days around the wrestling business. Uh, very, very sad to hear he passed away just recently, but. With that, Kurt, let's uh, move on a little bit. I want to uh, let's change the pace here before we go to our segments. I want to read an article. I have not read this before. I guess it had been out for a few years. 
It's from 2014. It's called Lord of the Ring. Big Sky resident earned big reputation as undersized wrestling pro. Have you ever heard of this <laughs> article about Pat Tanaka? I haven't, no. All right, let me read this to you. When he was 12 years old, Big Sky resident Pat Tanaka decided to move out of his parents' house and live with his friends in an apartment. He was earning more than 1000 a week and could easily pay the rent and other bills. So let me reiterate. When he mm-hmm. was 12 years old, Pat Tanaka claims that he moved out of his parents' house to live with his friends and he was making more than $1,000 a week. Well, I think somebody should have called Child Services and uh, see what's going on there. <laughs> now 52, the soft-spoken Tanaka has semi-retired from a lifestyle that made him millions and a household name amongst <laughs> wrestling fans. It made him millions of what? <laughs> That's a very good question. It doesn't specify that. Uh, mentions a title that he won here on some indie show mentions that he now coaches and trains Olympic athletes and police squads around the countries. (laughs) Tanaka first visited big sky in the summer of 2012 and moved here shortly thereafter. It's a really magical place and very special. He said he would know his stints in the wrestling, excuse me, his stints with the wrestling associations have taken him around the world. When Pat was three, his father, professional wrestler Duke Kiyomuka, began training him. My dad just knew I was going to be trouble. He didn't train my siblings, Pat says. Pat laughs, excuse me. What exactly can a three-year-old do? You'd be surprised. Calisthenics, discipline stuff. I really just took to it. Even then, I needed discipline, he laughs. By five, he was doing judo and amateur wrestling bantam competitions. Tanaka claims he was never good at any other sports, though he loved to watch and tried to play baseball, football, and basketball. When he was 12, he won a judo world championship in Japan in the open division competing against coaches and competitors in their 20s. Much to his father's dismay, (laughs) Tanaka turned down Olympic opportunities. He was already used to the money he earned as a referee. So hold on. At the age of 12, because that's what they said earlier. In the wait, article, wait, wait. Okay. The Olympic opportunities. I want to get to that. I have no recollection of uh, a Mr. Patrick Tanaka being um, phoned up to say, hey, we need some people to set up chairs at the Olympic event, the track and field event today. I, I don't think he did that. You don't remember 12-year-old Pat Tanaka winning the World Judo Championship in Japan in the Open Division? Oh, that's right. His tag team partner was Martin Cardigan, and the Queen of England gave them both medals for it. I don't know. His partner may have been Hangman Pobans based on the way this article is going. <laughs> but let's finish this. Still training to, took up a good portion of his childhood, but he didn't mind. I was really, really into it, he said. It's what I wanted to do more than anything else. Every single day right after school, I would practice. I really loved baseball, basketball, and football, but I just wasn't any good at those sports. He keeps going back to the idea he couldn't play any other sports. <laughs> At the like, age... I'm a t- like, I'm a total fuck-up, so I'm going to be a wrestler instead. At the age of nine, Tanaka started setting up rings for professional wrestling. I can't speak. For professional wrestling. At 11, he was refereeing. The WWE <laughs> filmed Wednesday mornings, and Tanaka would miss school to referee. One oh, day dear. when a wrestler did not show up, 12-year-old Pat was given a mask to hide his age and sent into the ring. His opponent was in his 20s. He went under, quote, stupid names like The Assassin. When he or was, Patanaka. Patanaka went under stupid <laughs> names like The Assassin. When he was 13, his wrestling buddies would pick him up from his Tampa high school 
and drive him to their competitions throughout Florida. He would not make it home till 2 a.m. and then would have to train in the morning and attend school the next day. It was a seven-day-a-week schedule. All the guys that I was working with were huge stars and my mentors. I was really lucky and blessed to be on the road with these guys, Tanaka said. I was the envy of the kids at high school because I had my own apartment and was on television, but the girls weren't allowed to hang out with me because I was the bad guy. He was a referee. What do you mean he was the bad guy? But anyway, uh, at, at 16, Tanaka went to Japan to wrestle for a week and was invited to train in one of the world's best dojos. The training, which lasted a year, was tough even by his standards. He returned to the States, finished high school, and as luck would have it, professional wrestling was entering its glory days in the 1980s. Tanaka received his first of several big contracts when he was 18. $1.2 million for six years. Now, <laughs> Did you just say $1.2 million for six years? Did you just say that? I just said Pat Wait. Tanaka received his first of several big contracts when he was 18. $1.2 million for six years. Okay, wait, wait, hold on. Hold on right there. Well, let, me, let me do some figuring. Okay, one, two, okay, five, ten, fifteen. Uh, I just want to make certain I only have 25 Ativans in, in this, um, in my my little bottle here. But from the way I feel, I think there should only be ten left now. I, I don't know what's going on. Well, here's I feel quote. like a fool. Well, here's a quote from Pat. You just squander the money when you were young. There was no one there to guide me. My father had passed away. You were delusional at the time. You think the money will just keep coming. But it doesn't, he says matter-of-factly. Sitting out for a concussion was unheard of. When he broke his leg and told he would lose his spot if he took time off, Tanaka persevered. In a span of four years, he suffered 33 concussions. The only time he took off was when he broke his neck. At, <laughs> at five foot, <laughs> he, he walked it off two weeks later and was fine. At five foot eight and 180 pounds, Tanaka wrestled opponents as large as six foot five and 230 pounds. I was the first short guy to go in the ring. And I was very <laughs> blessed. <laughs> I so wish, I so wish Bull Curry was alive so we could go up to him and say, This guy says he was the shortest wrestler ever to make it big in the ring. <laughs> Tanaka named one of his tag teams Bad Company after his favorite band at the time. They returned the, fl <laughs> they returned the favor by playing live when he walked to the ring at one of his events. Did that ever happen? I don't know. I don't think so. In the dying days of the AWA, I, did they get Bad Company to play for Bad Company? I don't remember that. No, I think, I th I think, I think Pat Tanaka's neighbors played that every time he came home. Yeah. Well, WrestleMania, he says, was a nice gig as he made a million dollars a day. Wait, wait. <laughs> WrestleMania was a good a million dollars a day. A day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Still, he went through the money buying homes for friends, staying in the best hotels and purchasing whatever he wanted whenever he wanted it. If I saw a car that was $60,000, I bought it. I never argued over the price. I just paid it, he says. Reflecting on his career and concussions, Tanaka has but one telling regret. I outlived the money. <laughs> 
Although officially retired more than a dozen years ago, events like WrestleCon, which give him an opportunity to interact with fans, are worth the effort. Uh, looking at the window of his Big Sky home, Tanaka comments, it's just gorgeous here. This is not your everyday scene. But his has not been an ordinary life. And that's an article from the Bozeman Daily Chronicle from May 8th, 2014 by Laura Bell on Pat Tanaka, Lord of the Ring. I remember when Ron Scholar was promoting the AAA shows. Um, and I, you know, that, that's when with Ron Scholar, I'd booked like the local boys. And right. I think it was on the second show, Scholar called me up and said, we're pulling Mercurio from the six-man tag. And I'm going, oh, oh well, okay, I don't know why, but, uh, you know. Uh, and then he gave it to Pat Tanaka. So you had this lucha match with five luchadores and Pat Tanaka. And I remember I was talking to Conan on the phone. I'm saying, hey, you know, Mercury is pulled from the match. And, you know, I know there's nothing I can do, but I mean, you know, that's like $100 to him. And, you know, that's <laughs> that was a payday for him, a decent one. And Conan said, well, Tanaka's a friend of mine, so I got him booked. And, you know, I understand that. And he says, yeah, you know how that works. But, boy, it made it a bad match just having him in there. They hated working with that guy. I was never a fan of Conan the Booker. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> Conan is one of the most intriguing people I know. Uh, I can generally say I love him, but, you know, if I lived with him, I'd always be looking over my shoulder because I know he's somebody who's, you know, uh, how would you he's like uh, Omarosa how, how, of, what's that he's like the Omarosa of Lucha Libre how's that I mean he's just like this character that everywhere he goes problems arise every single they do that's, and see up. that's what intrigues me about him I mean I again we get we get along he's been very nice to me but that but that doesn't mean I you know I hear every so many people say like Oh, yeah, they did this and this to the other person, but they were nice to me, so they're a good person. Where I'm saying, yeah, he's always been good to me, very nice to me, but that doesn't mean I'm going to trust him because he's somebody who plays the business and brings a lot of trouble to it. But what amazes me is he he's, he's an ultra cat because he doesn't have nine lives. He has 18 lives. The number of bridges he's burned but then has been able to go back to. I think about CMLL is the only person who would never take him back. I mean, he had terrible falling outs with AAA twice, and now he's back again. And the thing I will say for him is I knew him when he was maybe two years into the business, and he was the first wrestler I ever knew who just got every wrestling he, tape he could get under the sun and study them and figure out how somebody like him would get over. Because when he first started out, he tried to do a lot of flying stuff. And he could do them okay. He did them good, actually. But the thing is, here's this huge jack bodybuilder, and it didn't it didn't fit. And um, he was he was smart enough to find out how somebody like him would get over. But at the same time, he's not too tactful and gets himself in sticky messes. Does anyone hold the grudge as well as the Luderoth descendants at CMLL? Does anybody hold a grudge, I mean, with Conan, personally? Or? With anyone. If someone screws them over, it's just like they're gone. We're not even considering bringing this person back. From what I understand, uh, it's all Paco Alonso. It's not so much the entire organization. It's him. He's the one who has the final say, and he's, he's like a child. Uh, when his ego gets hurt, he doesn't realize, hey, this person I had a falling out with, we can make up with. 
And because um, that's what a smart promoter or wrestler would do. You realize you have these terrible falling outs, but you can still make money with each other. Um, but I don't picture him ever taking Conan back, but he has used La Parca or L.A. Park in a, the last few years, and a lot of people never thought they'd see that day. So either he's coming to a little bit or maybe he's getting older and is letting other people have a little more power. But yeah, yeah, uh, Paco Alonso, when, when, you know, I'd hate to see him and Mr. Pobans have an argument over their international sand sculptures because they would never speak to one another again. Well, we got to hope that that conversation does not happen. But with that, Kurt, let's move on here with the show. The first segment we're going to go to here is Bobby Fulton, a friend of the show, discussing Nikolai Volkov. Of course, there was a famous match a few years back that a lot of people were talking about online where Nikolai and Bobby wrestled, but the ring didn't show up. So they had to wrestle without any ring. We're going to talk about that day. And before we do that, we're going to go to a few words about Ramsor Records, the sponsor of this week's episode, of course, R-A-M-S-E-U-R. You can go to ramsorrecords.kungfustore.com. But let's go to this. This plug was originally going to be at the beginning of the top 10, but we will not be having a top 10 this week. Let's go to the plug, and then we'll go to Bobby Fulton, and we will be back on the other side. With that, let's get going with the top 10. And of course, the top 10 is brought to you by our friends, the wrestling fans over at Ramsor Records. And we want to tell you a little bit about one of Ramsor Records' great artists, Samantha Crane. We talked about her way back here on the show. Well, now she's on tour supporting the Oh Hellos on their fall tour. You can check her out. The tour begins on October 18th. The tour ends on November 18th. So for one month, 605ers, you have a chance to support a friend of the show, Samantha Crane and Ramsor Records. Here are some of the towns that she will be in, including Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Birmingham, Alabama, Memphis, Tennessee, Knoxville, Tennessee, Raleigh, North Carolina, Athens, Georgia, Charlotte, North Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, Charlottesville, Virginia, Baltimore, Maryland, Fairfield, Connecticut, Providence, Rhode Island, Burlington, Vermont. Syracuse, New York, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Detroit, Michigan, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Urbana, Illinois, Louisville, Kentucky, Asheville, North Carolina, Nashville, Tennessee, and the tour winds up on the 18th of November in Fayetteville, Arkansas, excuse me, Fayetteville, Arkansas, there's no S, at George's Majestic Lounge. More information available wherever it is that you find more information. Just Google Samantha Crane, Oh Hellos, Fall Tour 2018. Once again... From Ramsor Records, R-A-M-S-E-U-R, Ramsor Records. Wow, that's quite a swing. All of those I recall as being great wrestling towns. And I've been to the Westcott Theater in Syracuse a bunch of times. I may get a chance to check Samantha out uh, when she's in my area. Is the Westcott a nice place? It is. It's a former porno theater. (laughs) I saw the Jade Pussycat there. All right. Well, another another Thank 605 so plug ends in a classy manner here on the yeah. program. <laughs> Remember that that sticky substance on the floor of the Westcott Theater is probably spilled beer. Yes. It's been there since the opening of Misty Beethoven. <laughs> I am happy to welcome back to the Super Podcast a man that some have called fantastic and some have called many other things. Mm-hmm. And that is your friend and mine, yeah. Bobby Fulton. Bobby, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Brian. I really appreciate the opportunity. Anytime I can, 
to come on your wonderful program. It's always a lot of fun to talk to you on the program, but it will probably be fun today, but maybe a little bit differently because we're going to talk a little bit about Nikolai Volkov, who, of course, just passed away. And right. as I said to you off air, I was trying to think of a good guest to talk to about Nikolai, and I had a short list and I had a few people and someone suggested Bobby Fulton. In fact, it was friend of the show, Scott Cornish, uh, who suggested Bobby Fulton. Right. And I said, you know, that's very interesting. I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, Bobby would be a great guest about Nikolai. So I want to know how you first met him and what are your earliest memories of Nikolai. But before any of that, he was a friend of yours. How are you doing? And what's this last week been like for you? I'll tell you what it's been. It's been very tumultuous for anybody within the wrestling industry, especially on uh, what could be a black Sunday for professional wrestling as we lost three of our brothers, uh, Rickhouse Brown, uh, of course, Brian Christopher and, and uh, Nikolai Volkov, it, it was just a tough week, you know, and uh, it's uh, terrible anytime this happens. And, uh, you know, it's just rough to realize. We we're, we think of every all of the wrestlers as superheroes that have no end. But then all of a sudden, it's the end of their life and the end of their story, so to speak. And it's just, it's just tough. You think about the family you think about the friends and and all the great wrestling fans and those that have enjoyed all the great years of their matches and and their contributions to the greatest sport in the world professional wrestling it's tough and in the case of Nikolai his singing as well yes and not only that his magic tricks (laughs) well well, uh, he never showed those to the fans he only showed them to you no, 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 no. But I'm just saying that's another little thing. But you know, you talk about the first time I met Nikolai Volkov was uh, when I went up to do those uh, TV tapings in Allentown and uh, Hamburg and, and Allentown. And uh, I was in, in, in another friend of mine, Mike Dupree, Chris Parsons, who does a lot with Dick the Bruiser stuff on online and everything. We were up there, you know, uh, wrestling. And, and as a matter of fact, I'd wrestled two or three times that night already. And all of a sudden, they came to me and wanted me to wrestle Nikolai Volkov. I was already challenged. So instead, uh, Mike Dupree got the nod there on that and went out and wrestled uh, Nikolai Volkov on, on, on one of the tapes. But uh, he was a giant of a man with a big barrel chest. And later on, I heard the reason why he quit being Bethel Mongol was because of his haircut. And we, we had a hard time going out with his family with that Mongol, that same Mongol look, you know, with the long braided yeah. hair and, of course, the little little uh, bit of hair, tuft of hair in the front. And then, of course, uh, Billy got the opportunity to be Bolo Mongol, so it was Bolo Gito, but then Beto became Nikolai Volkov, which was a name used prior by another wrestler for many years in the Midwest, but uh, like I said, Nikolai Volkov was a gentle giant, a big man. His story's impressive, where he came from, the communist country, and struggles and things, and he lived the American dream, and uh, for me, I really didn't, I wrestled on some shows with him, but as far as during the territory days, didn't wrestle really in the territories. We missed each other in territories and stuff like that, but uh, we uh, had a chance to wrestle on, like I said, some shows together and things. But uh, I always remember his magic tricks, as you said, that the fans didn't get a chance to see in his sense of humor. 
And not only that, we had one of the most famed matches uh, that went viral the night that him and I and Marion O'Hara wrestled on a gymnasium floor just a couple of years ago. That's right. That show happened a few years back where, what was it? The ring never showed up, so you and Nikolai wrestled on the gym mats? Uh, well, it was one It was one piece of carpet that they found in front of a door, and then the rest was just the gym floor. So it wasn't even a mat. It was like one of those runners that you have in front of a door. They laid that down, and what had happened, the story on the ring was, it was in the Indiana, and the state trooper had stopped the ring uh, trailer and said that tag is not for that trailer. So I just started my eight-hour shift. Don't move this trailer today. Take oh. everything off the trailer. So long story short, the ring didn't make it. But nevertheless, him and I went out there and wrestled. And then after that, got ridiculed by so many people because of the decision that we made. And it was so many people not within the real wrestling industry, but within the backyard wrestling industry thought it was an insult for us to have done what we had done but hey brian listen it's all about the fans and the show must go on even honky tonk man told me he remembers in huntington west virginia for the wwf the ring didn't show up one night in a packed place and they all wrestled on the floor and even even wild bull curry in manchester ohio one time the ring didn't show up back in the days of big time wrestling, and they wrestled on a high school gym floor. So it was not something that was n- never done before, but it was something that me and Nikolai Volkov talked about. And like I said, people, some people ridiculed it. And I think Sports Illustrated Internet had rated it one of the worst things to ever happen in professional wrestling since I don't know what, but it was a lot of fun. And I'm, uh, it was tragic about Nikolai because that night, me and Nikolai did an interview that's online, and he talked about the importance of drinking water and about the health aspect and everything like that, and it just floored me, uh, you know, over his passing and everything. And he's 70 years old, young, Brian. I mean, and it's it's just tragic. That night where the ring didn't show up, was Nikolai game right away? Did you have to convince him to yeah, go along with this? or yeah. And what happened was the ring didn't come and the promoter came to us and said, there's no ring coming tonight, but there was fans there. I took it upon myself to announce to the wrestlers, there's no ring, but we're going to wrestle. And I asked him, do you mind? And he said, I'm here. I'll do it. But there was a couple of guys that said, if there's no ring, we can't wrestle. We're leaving because there was no top ropes to jump off of. So they left. So it was left down to about six guys to wrestle on the show. And yes, Nikolai was for it 100% all the way. He was a true professional. When Nikolai was on WWF television in the mid-80s, he was already an experienced professional. He had been a veteran for years. Sure. He was big and he was bulky and he wasn't a speedy guy. But it's easy to forget in the 70s, he was once a super impressive beyond just the physique. He was a fast, big powerhouse. And, of course, he had oh, yeah. a few runs with Bruno, and he was just such an impressive... Sure. He was, he was, he was unbelievable. Great shape. That great big, thick chest. And uh, 
Not only that, he was Boris Bresnikov when he wrestled for, I think it was the name, when he wrestled for Vern Gagne yeah. in the AWA. That's right. Because as I said, that Nikolai, Volk, Nikolai Volkov had already been there in the 50s and the 60s. So when he went to work for Vern, he, was, he, was, he had changed his name. But yeah, he was great condition. He was a true athlete uh, of any sense of the word. And what a, like I said, a guy that could probably kill you. And I think he was a boxer and uh, just unbelievable. But what a gentleman and a nice guy. And I mean, like I said, it was just, uh, it was just unbelievable news to hear that, especially being 70 years old, only 70. And I mean, I've just seen him in New Orleans a couple of months back during WrestleMania weekend. Happy go lucky guy, great guy, just, just a just a jovial, I guess, would be a word. Uh, good guy, you know, Brian. Super nice, and like you said, in the seventies, he was a great big guy. But man, he could move, and he was impressive, and it was unreal. And and he drew a lot of money. And I think even Vince McMahon said that that Nikolai Volkov drew him and that company tons of money. There you hear it, Bobby Fulton, the fantastic. Bobby Fulton, I appreciate his time, and I appreciate him sharing some memories about Nikolai Volkov here on the show. Speaking of sharing memories here on the show, a while back, one of the most popular segments we've ever had was the segment on the Sugar Hold Challenge. Of course, that was where William Harding discussed the time in 1981 he got in the ring and he got out of Bob Roop's Sugar Hold. Since that time, William's had an interesting journey in and around professional wrestling. We had an opportunity to catch up with him and find out what's been going on with our very own Sugar Hold champion. Let's go to this conversation right now with William Harding. I am very happy to welcome back to the Super Podcast someone who is on the shortlist for most popular guests as well as someone who was in one of the most popular segments in show history. That is friend of the show, William Harding. Welcome back to the show. Hello, Mr. Brian Lass, and hello to all the 605 fans out there. I'm very glad to be back. I feel like you've become a legend, <laughs> you know, in a lot of ways. I feel like you and this story about you and the sugar hole has taken on a whole new life since you appeared on the show. Uh, I think from what I recall, I had seen something on Facebook about the story, and you had posted, and I got in touch with you, and I asked you to come on the show. And as I said right there in the introduction, it was one of the most memorable segments in show history. Uh, it's been a wild year, I can I can say that. In the original interview, when we did the original interview, uh, or when you asked me to do it, I told my wife that there's a guy out there that wants to talk to me about that Bob Roop thing from all those years ago. And she said, okay. And I really didn't know what to think about it because, as you know, I'd, I'd been out of wrestling for a long time. Yeah. And um, then we did the interview. And then somebody on the 605 page, when we when we were still getting all the messages on the 605 main page, you had done the promo on Jim Cornette's experience, episode 168, I believe. And some gentleman out there said that Cornette had popped on that. Now, I'm 56 years old. I had no idea what popped meant. So I'm like, well, what are you talking about? And they directed me to that episode, and I went and listened to it. And I swear to God, my mouth dropped to the floor when he said this was a famous story. And I'm like, oh, my God, Jim Cornette knows about this. And then I started looking up the history of the 605 podcast, and I started getting worried because I said, this is going to be a big thing. (laughs) (laughs) 
And, um, but look, when the episode came out, everybody was really great about it. And I got messages from all over the world and my Twitter feed went from 39 people to like, it's over 8,000 something people now. And it's just been a wild, wild year. You know, you said that you told your wife that you were going to come on a show and tell the story. How aware was she of the story? I mean, you know, I, I forget if I had asked you this originally, but in all the years after ICW and after that night with Bob Roop, was it a story you frequently told? Was it a story that your family frequently talked about? She was glad I had somebody else to tell it to. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I've heard this. You know? <laughs> um no, honestly, like I said last year, when we did it, when Bob and I did the Sugar Hole Challenge back on June 3rd, 1981, uh, we talked about it around Frankfurt for a while, like three or four months. And then that was it. And it didn't come up again till like 2001 on Cafe Memories when somebody was talking about it and Izzy Slapowitz commented on it. And I wrote the story up there and I got a few emails about that. And then Bob did his interview with Scott Teal and, um, I started getting a few more e emails about it, but it really didn't take off until we did our interview last year that aired, I think, the end of February. Yeah, it was in February. It was the end. It was uh, actually it aired originally. The debut date was February 27th, 2017. It was episode 62. Of course, it was entitled Sugar Hold Challenge, as it should be. And you can go check that out at 605pod.com. And it became a very memorable segment. And you said that before that, you really hadn't had much to do with wrestling in a very long time. Talk about what happened in the immediate aftermath. Well, the interview aired that night, and 1.30 in the morning, I started getting Facebook Messenger messages. The first two I got was from Joe Stasi and Chauncey Faulkner from the ICW Outlaws of Old School Wrestling Facebook page. Yeah, yeah. And they wanted me to be part of that. And I said, sure. And I met up with Joe and I met up with Chauncey since and I've talked to them a lot about what went on and their memories of it. And Joe and I even went to, uh, it was either Pikeville or Paintsville to the uh, BCW show down there with King Cantrell, somebody you know pretty well. And um, we went down there and sat with Bart Batten for the show and watched the event down there. It's It's been a crazy thing. Um, met up with Bo James. Somebody else has been on your show a couple of times. and. Yeah. I've now worked with him over the last year with AMW and gotten to know him real well. AMW is Bo's group that runs in Kentucky, correct? Yeah, um, Appalachian Mountain Wrestling. Right, right. Okay. And um, the best thing, the funniest thing that came out of it was that uh, Bobby Blaze had sent me a message on Twitter saying how much he enjoyed that interview. And he said he was going to be at the Lexington Comic Con in a few weeks. This was last year. And he said, come on down, I'd like to meet you. And I said, sure, I'll come on down there. And he was down there with Jim Cornette and uh, Al Snow. So I go down there, and I find they're in Wrestler's Row there. And I find him, and I introduce myself. I said, Bob, Mr. Bobby Blaze. He said, yes, sir. I said, William Harding. He jumps up. He's like, it's the sugar hole guy. <laughs> Al Snow practically leaps across the table, sticks his hands out, and says, how the hell did you do that? <laughs> yeah. Which is a question I've gotten a lot from wrestlers yeah, I'm sure. over the last year. <laughs> and I talked to them for a while, and then Jim had come back from a panel, and in between people that were meeting and greeting with him, he wanted to know the story as well. So I stood there for like an hour talking to him, which was great. I, I love talking to him. I love seeing him work. And it's just been wild. I mean, messages from all over the world, 
um, meeting and greeting a lot of people. Fun times. <laughs> Fun times. You said you did some work for Bo James's Appalachian Mountain Wrestling. What exactly have you done? Appalachian Mountain Wrestling actually um, belongs to Kyle Maggard, and Bo works with Kyle on it. Oh, okay. I, I do remote filming for them. They uh, have a show that airs called uh, AMW Heroes and Icons that airs on the CBS affiliate in Hazard, Kentucky, uh, WYMT. And I originally met them because Kyle thought that I was part of the 605, that I was one of the people that worked on it. And I had talked to him about doing a couple of segments, like going down and filming a couple of things for my Twitter page and my Facebook page. And that kind of, that's kind of turned into an ongoing thing. And I do it for the love of the sport. I do it because of one of the things that we had talked about where I had originally thought about asking Angelo for a job in lieu of that money that I was supposed to get. Yeah. And I thought, you know, you know, you're never too old to learn. And I've had a great time with those guys down there. Uh, Al Snow's been down there working with us on that too. One of the guys in the, sh- in the promotion went viral, uh, the progressive liberal Daniel Richards. That's been huge. That's right. Yeah. And it's a growing, growing promotion. We've, we're getting a lot of really good people in there. Uh, Bard Batten has even even come on at times just to do television commentary. So I'm getting to hear a lot of great stories from people as well. It's it's cool sitting back in the locker room listening to everybody talk. What's it like for you, though? Because it's not like you went from being a huge fan in the moment to all of a sudden working with a wrestling group. You were someone who really walked away from wrestling, someone who didn't have the interest that you once had in it as it had changed and evolved. So what's it like for you all these years later to be back involved with wrestling? Well, let's say the interest hasn't waned. It's just the style of wrestling has changed. I wasn't a huge fan of the new product. I like the old school wrestling because it was a different attitude, different time. You know, you didn't have the music, you know, you didn't have all the, the lights. So people just came out and they were who they are. You know, they walked out and you knew it was Ronnie Garvin. You knew it was Bob Roop. You knew it was Bob Orton Jr. Lanny, Randy, all those guys, you just knew who they were. And before that, it was Tojo and Jerry and Bill Dundee. And it wasn't gimmicks. I mean, they were just who they were. And they got in there and they didn't do all the acrobatics or anything. It was just good old solid wrestling. And that's what I like about Appalachian Mountain Wrestling because that's exactly what they're doing there. You know, you're not going to see a bunch of the acrobatics or like some of the crazy stuff you've seen on the mothership with some of those <laughs> gifs they put out there about people injuring themselves. Oh, boy, it's just yeah. <laughs> it's just good, solid family entertainment, and that's what I really enjoy about AMW. You mentioned Bart Batten earlier. Since the Sugar Hole Challenge episode aired, are there other ICW wrestlers or company personnel that you've spoken with? Uh, talk to Ronnie Garvin. I think it was almost immediately after that, but he didn't remember it. But he was there that night and uh, trying to think of who else I've talked to. I talked to Lanny. I saw Lanny on May 5th of this year. AMW was doing a Hall of Fame honoring Angelo, Randy, and Lanny. And he had a lot of questions for me. And I stood there just talking to him for a while before the show started and had a really good time with him, had a really good meet with him. He just told me to have fun with all the stuff that's been going on lately. And I have. You know, I've got to meet a lot of people. I got to sign some autographs and take some pictures, and it's been a blast. It really has. Have people asked you to put them in the sugar hold? Yes. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> what do you do? What do you do in that situation? How do you let your fans down? Well, I'll do it. <laughs> I'm not going to stretch them, 
you know, I'm just, if they want to see a demonstration of it, of, because I just put, as a matter of fact, Bo, Bo James, we were in Hyden, Kentucky. And to the surprise of the guy he was working with, he put him in a sugar hole just for my amusement. <laughs> you know, even on the video, he says, here you go, William. <laughs> and uh, I put that on YouTube and I said, okay, guys, you want to see what it is? Here it is. Okay. Yeah, because that is the frequent question still, even after the episode aired, you hear from so many people exactly what is the sugar hold. I still don't understand what it is and how you apply it. Well, think of somebody putting a can opener on your head. That's, that's about the best way I can say. It's actually, I think it's kind of a simple hold. Um, you're just laying on either side of your body and somebody comes in behind you and put your ribs, put you, you can put your ribs on the back of their ribs, wrap your arm around the back of their head which means both of their arms are behind them. And then you underhook the bottom arm. And with your other arm, you can grapevine the leg or you can grab the knee or you can actually arm bar in front of the midsection and hold them down, which I think is probably the most effective way to do it. And then you just lean into it and press that head into the body. And it puts all that pressure on the, on the head and the back of the spine. And it's even Lanny said, it's one of those holds that can kill you if you do it improperly. And, um, but there's that video out there that Bob did, or somebody did of Bob, where it's called Roop Stretches a Wannabe. Right, or that's something in like. the snake pit in Tampa, Florida, and it's Bob Roop at Eddie Graham's behest stretching someone, and from what I gather, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, there is a portion of that video where he actually does apply a version of the sugar hold. First 45 seconds. So that's... watch that video, the first 45 seconds or the sugar hold. Yeah, I went out there. I finally saw that video. And the funny thing was is that uh, there were some comments after I did my interview with you. And one of them said, I guess this isn't William Harding. So. <laughs> <laughs> you see, you've become a legend. How does it feel? I know I have heard that apparently other people in wrestling have tweeted about the sugar hole. Was it X-Pac? Is that who, am I remembering correctly? Yeah, Sean Waltman and Rip Rogers had tweeted back and forth. They were talking about ribs and wrestling. You know, sometimes that's all you get out of it. And uh, Sean had replied back to Rip that, did anybody in the ICW ever get paid except for that guy that got the $1,000 from Bob Roop? <laughs> and that was two years before we talked. And then I found an interview with Lanny talking to Sean Waltman about it. Sean has this fascination with it. And it was a year before we did our interview, and he talked to him about it. So all this has been going on without my knowledge <laughs> until this past year. I've probably learned more about the sugar hold and its nefarious history in the last year than I've ever known in my lifetime. When I said you have become a legend, it's not even because of the sugar hold. It's because you got the money out of Angelo. That's why yeah. you've become a legend. How many people go right to that? They want to talk about the sugar hold, but they can't believe the money aspect of the story. Really? They just want to talk about the sugar hold. Most of the pro wrestlers I've met just want to know how I got out of it. That's that's the question. How the hell did you do that? Uh, got that from Bobby Eaton. <laughs> but most of the guys I work with, they they want to know how I got out of it. And I said, you're going to have to go to 605 and listen to the interview. I explain it step by step. And um, it's it's just funny that all these people that I've watched on television for so long are now asking me questions, and they're really interested in the answer. It's it's kind of bizarre. As a matter of fact, um, Scott Cornish had posted on when we were talking when you were talking about a minute ago about uh, if I'd ever been asked to do it again. And he posted out there when I said I was going to go down there and meet Bob Roop. He asked me if I was going to do the challenge with him again. 
And I said, dude, at this time, you're going to have to call it the cardiac clutch because <laughs> one of us ain't coming out of it. <laughs> so. Well, you bring up Bob Roop there. I do want to talk about this. Of course, a great friend of mine, someone who is a host here on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. Barry Rose runs these really great championship wrestling from Florida fan fest. And I know you recently attended one of them and it was quite memorable. I saw where Bob had gone back out where he was in one of your fans on the mothership page had posted that Bob was in Texas doing meet and greet. Bob Roop you're speaking of just. Yeah, Bob Roop. And I didn't know he was back out. So I looked up online to see where he was coming. That was local. And the next event I saw was uh, Lutz, Florida, just right outside of Tampa. And amazingly enough on the very weekend of the 37th anniversary of it. So I messaged Barry about how to get tickets and I told him who I was, and I wanted to come down there, you know, and just meet Bob and shake his hand and say hi. And he told me how to get the tickets, and I went ahead and got my tickets. And he um, messaged me back a couple of days later. He said, would you be interested in doing a panel with Bob Roop for the fans in attendance? Uh, I said, sure. If If Bob's good with it, I'm good with it. So a few days after that, he said, um, okay, it's set up. And I said, great. I didn't know what to expect. He said Bob was really enthusiastic about it. Uh, I was looking forward to doing it. it. It would be the first time that I had actually seen him since the night of the challenge 37 years ago. And I went down there and got my room with Marriott and, and Barry and, and Jeff Bowdrin. We all went out to Portillo's uh, restaurant the night before. Uh, Bob got in there late that night, so I didn't get to see him on Friday. But the funny thing the next morning was that uh, I was going to go out to my car to get something out of the car. And as I'm walking out, there's a lobby of the Marriott, and there's like a breakfast area, and then there's this this uh, marble bar that has bar stools with it. it. Just runs down the middle, it's kind of where everybody congregates. And I saw Bob sitting there, so I went on out to my car and I got my thing out and I came back. And as I started to walk walk up, I was behind him, and everybody on the other side of the bar started smiling. You know, I could see Barry smiling, and all these other guys. And I walked up there, and just, almost as soon as I got up to him, he turned around and looked at me, and I said. Hello, Mr. William Harding. And I shook his hand and he said, well, hello. And he, he just started to laugh a little bit and they looked me up and down. He said, you can't do it now. <laughs> <laughs> so once everybody else stopped laughing, I just looked at him and said, well, let's move some chairs and tables here, partner. <laughs> but it was it's one of those things where you worry about, you know, meeting your heroes and stuff and you, you want it to be a good experience. And this whole thing was just an, a tremendous experience. We had talked off and on, uh, during the day. And then we went in and had the, uh, they had the convention going on and I came in there. And also while I was, was down there with him that morning, talking to him up walks Dory Funk Jr. And they start talking like, you know, it was yesterday for them and how great it was to see each other after all this. It was just great to be standing there listening to all this. Two legends sitting here right in front of me. But um, we went on in and they started the convention and there were a lot of great people there. Uh, Buddy Collett was there. Steve Kern. It was, the whole thing was about Bob Roop and Steve Kern and this angle that they had about the POW gimmick back in the day, which was a tremendous story to sit there and listen to that. And then I found out that... Uh, I'm going to be going on with Bob. Bob's going to do an hour-long talk with the fans after the Steve Kern and Bob Roop segment. And then I'm coming on to finish it with him. And I thought, okay, wow. <laughs> so Main event. Main event, Saturday night. <laughs> so I get on there, and I, I basically tell everything that I told in the original interview. 
and everybody just nobody left. I mean, everybody was just sitting there transfixed listening. It was great talking to all these people, and they had questions. And Bob was really good about it. And the only thing that we really disagreed on, and this is something that I want to clear up for a lot of people, since I talked about that time limit thing last year, the dispute about the time limit. Right. They had claimed, let me remind everyone, when the sugar hold challenge happened, you got out of the sugar hold. One of the claims that they made in an attempt not to pay you was that you had gone past the time limit. But upon inspection, very basic inspection with your eyes, you realized there was no way they were keeping time. There was no Correct. way they would be able to justify that you had gone above or below any sort of time limit that was never agreed upon to begin with. Right. When I started talking about that, Bob said, point of rebuttal. And he starts talking about, you know, that there was a time limit and all that. And I honestly believe, I I truly believe this because I've heard him say it enough. And I take his word for it on this, that he was operating on the assumption that there was a time limit. And he had left the ring after I had the dispute with him about, you know, that he didn't have a watch on, the referee didn't have a watch on. And he was always already on his way back to the dressing room when I confronted the people down at the table. The timekeepers, where they didn't have a clock or stopwatch or <laughs> there was watches. No timekeeping, yeah. There was no timekeeping. <laughs> but I do believe him when he said he was operating on the assumption that there was a time limit. But I, and then I asked him, I said, but you know, nobody called it or anything. Nobody said anything about it until I was up and out. And that he said he knew it was getting close to the end of the time. He was just trying to hang on to me. But he said it was like hanging on to a wildcat because I was fighting so hard and I had him scissor locked anyway. And I was putting a pretty good hurt on him too. And then I got out and I'm I'm jumping up and and then the referee jumps up and starts screaming about the time limit. So we cleared that up between us. And uh, I think that's all good. But I do believe that he was operating on the idea that there was a time limit because I believe they did this at a couple of other events before they got to Frankfurt. Had anyone ever gone to the time limit? No, nobody ever got there. He submitted everybody in, in less than 15 seconds. What is it like for you? I mean, here, you know, you originally told the story on the show in February of 2017, and it was just me and you, and then eventually so many other people heard it, obviously. But what's it like for you to tell the story in front of Bob? I had no problem with it. I actually felt pretty comfortable talking to him. He agreed with everything I said. But the thing for him is that there were a lot of things. We talked briefly back in 2001, I found out. I thought it was 2004. It's actually 2001. And he knew about my martial arts training, and he knew about... um, a couple of other things that I talked about, but we never really went in depth of what happened to me that night. He only knew his side of the story. Oh, so he never knew the whole thing about everything after he left the ring. Right. He never knew about the police locking me up twice. He actually got mad at Bob Orton about what he said to me in the ring, Bob Orton Jr. That was Uh, because Bob Orton came out after you wouldn't leave the ring. You had gotten on the house mic and said, I want my money. You were standing in the ring. The people were all behind you because they had witnessed this. And they send out Bob Orton, a a tough guy from reputation, obviously, we know as well. And he basically tells you that he's going to mess you up if you don't get out of there. And you don't back down. You still don't get out of there. Well, what it was, and I'll just tell everybody what he said. It's, It's a little profane. I hope you don't mind. But what it was, I was standing there, and he came out, and he signaled me to put the microphone down, come over and talk to him. And when I went over there, I put my hands on the second rope. I had my head near the top rope, and I'm about two feet away from him. And he says, and I quote, Bob Roop's a good guy, and it would be in your best interest to get out of the ring and forget about all this, or I'm going to put you in a hole that makes your tongue suck your dick. (laughs) Okay, that was certainly not on the original broadcast. I didn't realize he said that. Wow. Well, Bob didn't either. And I told, I told Bob, I said, I was furious at the guy. He said, well, I am now. 
And then he said, I don't remember a point where Bob Orton Jr. had gone to Angelo about any of this. He didn't know if he did it on his own or whether Angelo told him to go out there and do it. So he doesn't remember that. I don't remember that. I don't know anything about that. But no, he didn't know about me getting locked up twice by the police in the back or, or Orton's threat. But one funny thing he said was when he talked about Angelo trying to uh, negotiate with me about offering me 250 and 500, <laughs> he said, you know what would happen? He said, if he agreed to 250, he'd come back and tell us he paid a thousand. Interesting. <laughs> Just so he could keep the rest of the money. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, but, and that's the other thing, too, with Bob Orton. Bob Orton, I believe, was a maybe a 10% shareholder in ICW. Yeah. So yeah. when he's going out to the ring, it's not just, hey, I'm protecting one of the boys or, hey, I'm trying to move the show along. It's $100 of that money comes from me. Yeah, it was him and Ronnie Garvin, Rip Rogers, and a couple of other people had shares in that. So, yeah, $100, $100 out of their pocket. But, you know, Rip was on your show once, and he talked about the pool that they had. And that it didn't make a big deal to him because it just came out of that pool. Right. So I'll take him. I'll take his word for that. That weekend in Florida with Barry Rose's championship wrestling from Florida Fan Fest. Where did you leave it with Bob? Did you stay in touch with him? The exchange numbers? Uh, sent him a Facebook request. I was sitting there. I showed him Travis Heckle's artwork. He loved that. And uh, I was talking to him that morning. I was sitting there at that little bar with him and there was another guy there and I got one of the greatest compliments I've ever gotten and probably one of the best stories from him that I've ever gotten. The best compliment I ever got was that some guy was asking him about what Bob thought would be, let me see how I can put this, um, what you have to do to make it in professional wrestling today. And when Bob and I had talked about, I talked about my training prior to that more in depth. So he knew about it. And Bob looked at the guy and he pointed his finger at me and said, you'd have to train like that guy. And I, I just took that as a tremendous compliment. Yeah. And um, after a couple of people had left and we were sitting there by himself or by ourselves, one of the things that, um, and I don't think he'll mind me telling this, it was kind of a personal thing, but I want to let everybody know what a, a personable and thoughtful guy he is, was that we talked for an hour in this panel and everybody liked it. I got a lot of handshakes and, and people telling me it was a great story. But sitting down there with him the next morning, he said, you know, when we got done, last night me and my son his son was there with him he said me and my son went back to the hotel room and he said when we got back up there his son asked him to show him what the sugar hole was and he said that's the first time in 25 years he's ever asked me to do that oh wow and i could see this huge smile on his face because it was just this tremendous bonding moment for them and, it, and if i take nothing else away from this that's i'll remember that because it's just the whole thing has just been this tremendous thing, just from something that happened 37 years ago, what is now considered a dark house show. And it, it's gotten to this, and it's kind of brought it full circle. And that, that was a tremendous little story for me. And I asked, I said, did you stretch him? <laughs> he, he said, a little bit. <laughs> so. Of course. Of course he did. But here we are as we begin to wrap things up. I'm sure you have something you'd like to say to some of the listeners, because I know so many people have reached out to you. I hear from so many people to this day to ask about or talk about the Sugar Hole Challenge segment. Anything you want to say to the 605ers out there? Yeah, I, I want to thank everybody for all the love and getting to meet so many great people. Getting to meet Jim Cornette, that was tremendous. Listening to all the other segments like you know, where Austin Idol has talked about it, Ron Fuller, uh, heard of Carl Stern talking to George Weingroff from an interview from 2009. 
all the fans that are on the mothership page that has been amazing and i've loved making friends with them and i met a lot of the 605ers down there in florida and all around this area it's just been a, a tremendous thing for me uh, it's been uplifting i've had kind of a tough year physically and that has kept me on an even keel and i really appreciate all love and thank everybody for all the support and i'm glad you like the story and just come up and say hi if you see me out somewhere there he is, the sugar hold champion himself, William Harding, and I'm sure you'll hear him on the show again at some point in the future. If you see him at a wrestling event, please go say hello and shake his hand. William Harding, a good, good friend of the show here at the Super Podcast. Speaking of friends of the Super Podcast, this next segment, Kurt, is one I think you're going to really love hearing. I think the listeners will really love as well. Our friend Dan Farron, the late Dan Farron, is here on the show <laughs> once again, and he's going to discuss... One of the great tag teams of all time, we could argue where they are in terms of West Coast tag teams in history, Gordman and Goliath. Where do you stand on Gordman and Goliath, Kurt? My single favorite tag team in the history of wrestling, and it's just it's just an atrocity that footage of them in their prime left that not much of it exists. They were some of the most perfect heels I've ever seen. It is, uh, the second match I ever went to in 1974 was them versus Tony Broco and Lopantera and Negra, and they could lead that crowd like a conductor leading an orchestra. They knew how to get the people pissed off. They knew how to make both Rocco and Pantera Negra shine uh, to the point where this 12-year-old kid really thought the titles were about to change. That's how much they were selling for the baby faces. And Black Gordman is one of the five best heels I have ever seen in my life. And they are the best tag team I've ever seen. What'd you think of the Twin Devils? I like them too. The only thing is I wish we had gotten them maybe 10 years earlier when they were more in their prime. You know, anybody who watched their matches, they were still good, but they were definitely guys in their 40s. And you could tell that they were hurting a little. But it's amazing they kept them heels uh, for so long before turning the baby face because <laughs> San Bernardino Arena, people would come up to get the occasional autograph from the, from the baby faces. But when the Twin Devils came, people would swarm over there because the Twin, twin Devils were one of the few who would actually take time and chat it up with you know, the fans, you know, even the silliest fan. They were very, very, you know, they just seemed like very nice guys. Speaking of nice guys, let's now go to He's Still Alive, the late Dan Farron. Talking <laughs> twice, <about laughs> twice resurrected Dan Farron, you have returned. Let's go now to Dan Farron on Gordman <laughs> and Goliath. I am very happy to welcome back to the Super Podcast today someone who has been a great guest and a great co-host on the program. He is your friend and mine, the late Dan Farron. Dan, welcome back to the program. Hello, Brian. It's great to be back. It's always good to be back for another edition of Late and Great, and that's what we're here for. <laughs> another edition of Late and Great. I want to make a little bit of a comment here at the beginning. Usually, you have much better audio. You're actually dealing with the heat has been so excessive where you are in California that, what did you call it, power hits, that the power keeps going in yeah, and out? We, so. we get power hits, so unfortunately, uh, we've had a couple today, and I'm afraid that we'll get started, and uh, and, and we'll take a hit, and, and we'll lose internet. So, um Unfortunately, we have to do it with a good old AT&T today. Well, speaking of taking a hit, uh, recently on the program, Howard Baum was on the show, and he said yes. that he always wondered why 
Great Goliath, of course, of the famous Black Gordman and Great Goliath tag team. Why was Goliath called Goliath? He was a small guy, not necessarily big or imposing. And I said, you know what? I actually know someone who is an expert on Gordman and Goliath, one of their biggest fans, someone who saw them countless amounts of times. And that, of course, is you, Dan Farron. So here you are on the Super Podcast once again. And I'm going to kind of leave it to you to explain Gordman and Goliath to someone who may put them into a YouTube search and see maybe them uh, in a tag match against Anoki and, I don't know, Sakaguchi or someone, or them in a handicap Mm -hmm. match against Andre the Giant and not truly get who they were, why they were important to Southern California wrestling, and just how good they were. Well, I think it goes even beyond the fact that they were important to Southern California wrestling. I think they were important to wrestling in general. Um, because they, they basically encompass many different styles. Um, I say this to Howard. Um, I've seen Black Gorman and the Great Goliath wrestle in person probably more times than any other tag team in my life. In fact, uh, when I was going to the San Bernardino Arena on a weekly basis back in 1974-75, I probably saw them at least 40 or 50 times just in, in about a year and a half. Uh, they are my favorite tag team of all time. And I think that uh, what happens with them often is you take a look at them and maybe they're they're not the most imposing physical team you might see. Uh, They just look like a a couple of guys you might, you know, find, you know, hanging out in the corner or or doing that kind of stuff. But the fact of the matter is, and let's take, let's take the great Goliath. Okay. You don't have to be a large person to be referred to as a Goliath, as somebody who's larger than life. Because great Goliath for most of us out here was larger than life. Now, I don't know where the name came from. Like a lot of guys, uh, you know, he, he wound up adopting that when he was down in Mexico before he came up here. But the fact of the matter is that Brink Goliath was one of the toughest guys uh, that I ever saw in the ring. And uh, he, I've, I've seen him with people when somebody would, you know, would give, you, give him a potato and he'd be very quick to return the receipt. Uh, he and, and uh, Gorman were both very, very tough wrestlers. And in fact, a lot of the guys that worked with them from the people I've talked to over the years, some liked work with him, working with them. Some guys didn't like working with them because the fact was, like a lot of the old school guys, uh, with Gorman and Goliath, if they did not like working with you in the ring, they wouldn't give you a lot. They wouldn't, they wouldn't bump a lot for you. Uh, if they respected you and liked you, um, you know, they, they would work with you, but God forbid that, that you do anything in the ring to either one of them, uh, that they didn't appreciate, uh, because you can take a look at, you know, you see, you'll see, you can see a guy sometime on the street and maybe he doesn't look all that tough, but if he were to get into a fight, he, he would rip somebody from limb to limb. And the thing about great Goliath was that the man very rarely spoke in the interviews. He was very, very tough. But he was one of those guys where um, I, I've seen him take jobbers apart, and he was constantly chewing gum, and he never lost a chew in, in that entire time. During interviews, during matches, whatever, he would just beat the living daylights out of you. So, you know, they may not have, you know, physical specimens like a, a lot of guys were, but these guys were as tough and, and as rough as can be. And like I think a lot of, like a lot of good tag teams, they both were different in their own ways. Um, Gordman was working as a, a vendor in Mexico when he first broke into wrestling. Uh, he was always kind of the cocky guy. He was the guy that handled most of the interviews. Goliath 
had a very, very rough childhood. He was one of 11 children living in Mexico. His family was so poor. His father was a bricklayer that he used to go down when he was like nine or 11 or whatever, and he would dig up sand and bring it back up to the house. And the kids would make the bricks that the father was going to go out and, and lay. So from a very early, uh, you know, a, a very early time, uh, Goliath was really, really, you know, uh, forced into, into being an adult and into and, and taking care of himself. So sometimes, you know, you might not be the biggest guy in the entire fight, but you are a guy who's gone through a lot. And um, you just basically, to, to put it bluntly, you just don't take shit from anybody. And um, he started out, Goliath did, as a driver for a, a famous uh, Mexican wrestler named Gorilla Ramos. And eventually got into the business. It's interesting because he and Boardman, their lives paralleled for quite some time. Uh, and that is they both were down in Mexico. They both started wrestling in the 60s. Uh, they were about five years apart in age. Gordman had, I wouldn't say easier, but he, he was much more of a social guy. He was a partier. He was a guy that liked to have a good time. Goliath was always a family man. He'd go, he'd do the job, he'd do the, his work, and then he'd go home to his family. And they started out wrestling separately. And when they first came to the L.A. Uh, area around 1970, they did work separately. Uh, Gordman wrestled with uh, Bull Ramos and Pepper Gomez as his partner for a while. Goliath came in after that. They were matched up. I, I, you know, I never asked Jeff Walton, I should, uh, about what the science was behind putting them together, except that they looked like they'd be a good team. But what I always liked about watching Gordman and Goliath was that they really were adaptable. They, no matter what style and, and what different kinds of wrestlers they were working with, um, they would always, always, uh, they could, they could always adapt to the whatever style. And if you look at the guys that they worked with over the years, you know, out here, they, they worked with the Guerreros and, and up north, they, they worked with Kenji Shibuya and Masa Saito. But they also wrestled in the central states in Texas and Georgia, and they were wrestling guys like Pat O'Connor there and, and uh, Ted and, and uh, Jerry Oates and um, Dick Slater and Mark Lewin and Bob Armstrong and Mr. Wrestling, too. So, you know, those are all very different wrestlers. They all had to have and you had to uh, adapt to whatever style they were going to do. Um, they were fast. They were crisp. If they liked you, they bumped a lot. Uh, I mean, and uh, there's a famous, there's, there's a clip that everybody could see uh, that's on the, the WWE Network and on YouTube where they were doing this test of strength thing with uh, Andre the Giant where they had um, two teams on each side of him like in a tug of war. And um, at the last second, you know, they're pulling on his arms and Andre, you know, flicks and, and wins the tug of war. Uh, Goliath even took the bump for the, for the, uh, the tug of war. I mean, any guy that would take a bump for a tug of war, I think is, is somebody that you have to respect. And that's, that's what I liked about it. They could do, when you talk about that, that match that that's famous and you see it all over the place, the, the handicap match with Andre the giant, they played that all over the place. And the re there's a reason why that survives to this day. It is probably one of the best, Andre handicap matches you will ever see because it starts off as comedy and black Gorman and great Goliath could do comedy spots. Uh, you know, they would, they would try to shake hands and Andre would squeeze their hand and then they would beg off and, and, uh, and they, they would do all the, the big bumps going outside the ring. And then they basically got their act together and they started double teaming Andre. And then Andre made the comeback and, and beat both of them. But 
there was no way that after that match was over that you would think any less of Corbin and Goliath at that point. Uh, they did what the, the old time guys were supposed to do. And that was, they got the guy over and, uh, it didn't matter if they lost because they were able to retain their heat after a while. Um, when Goliath first started wrestling, the great story is that, um, his payoff for his very first match was a six pack of Coca-Cola. Um, and probably working for probably working for Mike LaBelle. It probably didn't get much higher than that over the years, but, um, you know, he was kind of like the, the Arn Anderson. Uh, he was the, the quiet guy that, that could do all the stuff while, while Gordon did all the flashy stuff. Yeah. I always enjoyed all those years of watching it. And I got to see them 74, 75, which was probably their peak time. They uh, they were just so great. They could start a riot in the ring quicker than anybody else. And even when they turned face a couple of times, there was a they did a, they did an angle in, in the mid seventies, uh, a, a kind of ill fated thing when Louis Tillet was booking out here. Um, Louis Tillet was supposed to be an NWA representative, and he got into a uh, a feud with the Hollywood Blondes and Sir Oliver Humperdinck. So uh, Talay brought Gorman and Goliath back. They had been gone for several months as faces, and they feuded with the Hollywood Blondes. Those were some really great matches going back and forth. And then after the Blondes left, they brought in J.C. Dykes and the Infernos. And this was, uh, I believe this was J.C. Dykes and the Infernos' last run in a, in a major market. Um, I've always heard stories that there, there were a lot of demons bothering Dykes at that time, and, and, and he and the guy split up after that. But they did this angle. I never forgot this. And they repeated it all around uh, the horn. They burned Goliath with a fireball. And that left Gorman alone for a couple of weeks. And uh, J.C. Dykes and the Infernos would go to the, the arenas, even if they weren't scheduled for the show. And during, at some point between the matches, J.C. Dykes would march up and down the aisle with his whistle, blowing the whistle. And he would hand out uh, a piece of paper in Spanish and in English. That said, Black Gorman and the Great Goliath are yellow. And uh, Gorman would always come down um, you know, and start to chase J.C. Dykes. And then the Infernos would jump in, and uh, Dykes would paintbrush Gorman with the flyers. I got to tell you, there were only two security guards at the San Bernardino Arena. And uh, I don't know how a riot didn't break out that night when they started doing it. Because even when the Gorman and Goliath were wrestling as heels, it was kind of like they were still the hometown heels. Uh, the guy, the people still kind of liked them, even though they would they would go after them and yell at them and do stuff like that. But they were still the hometown boys, and uh, they were ready to climb into the ring and and go after Dykes and the Infernos that night uh, because of the fact that it, it they just uh, were just so irritated at them. Um, so I mean that just like I said, just because they may not have looked like the toughest guys in the world, Great Goliath was called great not because of his stature. He was called great because of, of who he was and, and what he could do. We just recently had Jeff Walton on the show talking a little bit about the WWA in the 1960s, some of the champions that really don't get talked about much from Pedro Morales to Mark Lewin to even Iron Mike DiBiase. A lot of people forget he was the world champion mm-hmm. out there yeah. in LA. What was the tag team scene like? Before Gordman and Goliath get together, you said they both get there, I think, what, 69, 1970. Eventually, they get put together as yeah. a tag team. And it just seems like such a natural fit. When you see pictures of them together, it just seems like a natural tag team. What was tag team wrestling like in L.A. before Gordman and Goliath? It was interesting. I mean, there were a lot of – they used to put a lot of guys together 
not on a regular basis. You know, when, when you work like in Memphis or other places, you get two guys that and maybe they were kind of floundering for a while or whatever, and they would create a tag team for them and push them strictly as a tag team. Um, I never really looked at the Los Angeles area as being a, a tag team territory. It was mostly a singles territory. And they wouldn't, there was what they would team people together for a short period of time, but usually it was because they were going to turn somebody on against somebody, or they were going to take someone and, um, and, and break up the team eventually or do something like that. So you had like these little teams that, uh, in general for a while, like you might have Neil Masperis and Chavo Guerrero, or you might have Freddie Blassie and, and, and they, they did a stunt thing once or twice where they, where they had him team with Tolis. Yeah. But it wasn't really a real, there was, there were teams like the medics and um, sometimes they would bring in teams like Anjo Blanco and Dr. Wagner, the originals from Mexico, but in general, they would do things like they would take uh, man mountain Mike, who was, uh, was a face and they turned him heel and they teamed him up with butcher Brannigan, who was a middle of the car guy, Joe Nova. And they would uh, win the belt and they would wrestle around for about a month and a half. And then they would decide to turn Brannigan's face and have him go up against Mike. And so the tag teams didn't really last for a long period of time, unless you were something like the Guerrero brothers or something that had some cemented bond between them. Gorman and Goliath didn't always have real strong, solid opponents sometimes. I mean, Shibuya and Sayedo were, were a, a great team. I never got a chance to see them, unfortunately. That that feud was over with by the time I got here. But when I saw them uh, from the mid-70s on, they were in a, a situation where um, they were going up against a lot of, of the local guys, and they weren't always the, the biggest names. And I always felt like the guys got a little... Not so much stale, but they got a little bored sometimes. So that's why they would all of a sudden go off and, and, and work in Texas or, or go off and work in the central states or go to New Japan, where they had a, a lot of success there on a regular basis. They wrestled under hoods for a while as the Asian terrors. And um, actually, there's a, there's a great match on YouTube, which has them under, under hoods against Anoki and Choshu. And that is always the match I use whenever anybody says to me, well, Jake Roberts created the DDT first. I always say you go four minutes in on this match and you see Black Gorman do the DDT twice on Josu, uh, just exactly the same way that Jake Roberts did it. So, I mean, I felt like they, they sometimes they wouldn't go far because they had families here, but they would on occasion, I think get bored uh, because the competition was not great and, and, and head off to other areas. How much heat did they have at their peak? And also, when they finally did turn babyface, when they were brought back as babyfaces, how did the fans accept them? Well, they didn't turn babyface. They did things over the years where a couple times prior to when I was here, they tried to do a Gorman-Goliath feud, and it was kind of like the Hardy feud they talk about now. The fans just really didn't want to see them wrestle each other. So what they would do is when they when they brought the, them back, they brought them back as faces. There wasn't any big incident that, that caused a turn. But Gorman and Goliath, as a lot of the guys do, just wrestled the same way as, as faces as they did as heels. Uh, they were not above cheap heat. They would curse in Spanish and yell out and things like that or whatever. Of course, the biggest heat uh, generator, which is talked about all the time, was when they had Jimmy Lennon introduce them as being from New Mexico because uh, they didn't want anything to do with the Mexicans. 
you know, uh, you know, they would yell, sit down, Mexican, shut up, Mexican, like that to people in the crowd. And that would just basically set them off. But I think this is something that I think was that happened a lot with territories in, in the old days all over the place. And that is you had the guys that were always kind of there. They might be faces for a while. They might be heels for a while. But like I said, they were homegrown guys. They were like the local team. And even if they they turned face or heel deep down, the fans kind of respected them and liked them, and it was something they were familiar with. So if somebody new came from out of the area and was feuding with them, you know they may they may cheer for the other team a little bit, but deep down they respected the guys. And I very rarely, very rarely ever saw anybody jump through the ropes and go after Gorman and Goliath. It's just that no one was that stupid to do that. I've seen it done on other situations. I saw somebody go after Crusher Verdue one time, but no one ever went up against uh, Gorman and Goliath because they knew what was going to happen. They were not going to take it easy. In fact, at one point, I think um, the, the Hollywood Blondes had gotten so much heat that they actually got a local wrestler to jump through the ropes on TV and go after the Blondes and they... Um, they basically grabbed the guy and worked him over and busted him open uh, in an effort to, you know, to show fans not to do this in case something like that were to happen. Um, I, uh, the reason I think it was uh, it didn't really completely work is because uh, the guy took bumps. Uh, you know, when, when he get hit, he would take a bump, and the minute that happens, you can hear the moan go up through the entire arena. Oh, it's you know, this is not real. This is this is one of them, uh, you know, doing that. But you know. Uh, you can find a lot of great stuff. I, I suggest to people that you can find a lot of interesting stuff around there. There was at one point after the territory went out of business in 82, the guys kind of hung around for a while. And when and McMahon came into the area not long after that, he did use a lot of the guys on the undercards for the original WWW. Uh, no, there's still three W's. WWE shows uh, back then. And Gorman Goliath were guys that they would uh, bring in. And they had a... Uh, <laughs> They decided to do the run the Olympic Auditorium one time, and they brought in as the undercard any of the guys that had worked in California. Plus, they had Wildman Jack Armstrong and Irish Mickey Doyle and Gorman and Goliath and John Tolis on the undercard. And it was really funny because it I, it had to be frustrating for the guys working on the on the show from the WWF at that time, it was because everybody knew the local guys. All the fans were cheering for the local guys, no matter who they wrestled against. John Tolis wrestled against Tony Gurria, and he was supposed to be the heel. The fans cheered for John Tolis. You know? <laughs> uh, so they would, they, so they basically had, had looked again. They looked at the guys as this is these are our home guys. You guys are the outsiders, and uh, you know you can be the face or you can be the heel, but we're still going to support our guys in the long run. How did Gordman and Goliath get along with the other wrestlers, with the other Mexican wrestlers, and of course with the LA office? I always felt that from what uh, what I've been told from the other guys is that, and, and actually I have had uh, situations where I have spoken, uh, I did speak to Goliath on a couple of occasions. Gordman always kind of disappeared whenever that happened. But afterwards, uh, when the territory closed, and uh, he was always a very gentle man, a very quiet man, and he also, they both were very respectful of the business. And that is like the old school guys, they did not uh, tell tales out of school. Uh, but uh, some of the guys were not happy with him because they didn't like, since they were originally trained in Lucha, they sometimes took big bumps and, and did stuff like that. And some of the guys, there's that old school mentality that it wasn't really, you know, it, it was, it was more of a Lucha thing and it was a little too big of a bump. It needed to be a little more realistic, but I never heard stories of anyone 
not thinking these guys were professionals, especially since Goliath spent a lot of time after his career ended training guys out here in Southern California, Lucha guys and, and, and other guys like that. Uh, a lot of, of, of guys have a tendency to look at Goliath as being like a father figure out here. When he retired, he had, uh, he had several heart attacks before um, he eventually passed away. And he retired like in the mid-90s. And he started running a school in San Bernardino at the San Bernardino Arena. And that's where actually Billy Anderson and Jesse Hernandez's school grew out of that. And he would put on shows with his uh, with the different students and whatever. And uh, he also um, spent some time working for Alex Knight, who was a local uh, enhancement guy here who had a license in the 1990s. And you know you could always you could always bring in Goliath to work on a lucha show or on a regular show, and it always kind of like raised the level of the competition. Um, I was working on this one show, and uh, I was the commissioner, and Alex Knight was supposed to wrestle Goliath in the main event and they had me do an angle in the ring where I did a contract signing. And I went up to Goliath back in the dressing room and said, is there anything you need or whatever? And, um, he was just very quiet. And so I was like, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm, I, we'll just, uh, you know, just, just follow whatever we do, you know? And, uh, and I did that. And that's one of those moments for me also as a fan, I was standing in the middle of the ring and I look over and there's this moment and I paused because in my head I was saying, I can't believe I'm standing in the ring with a great Goliath right now. But they they eventually they broke off and uh, and went their different ways. Uh, Gorman stayed for a while and worked on the Red Bastine uh, wind tapings. Uh, he wrestled under a mask again, and I think that the idea was that uh, Conan was on the show, and they were going to try to build a, some sort of mask versus mask match. But um, that, that never went anywhere, and that's the last time that that uh, I've seen Gorman out here. Like I said, Goliath. Uh, ran the school for the longest time, worked a lot of local shows, and then he eventually moved up to Las Vegas, and um, and he passed away there uh, about 10 or so years ago. But uh, Gorman's still alive, and Gorman actually is going to be 83 this year, so that has to put him on the short list of the longest surviving professional wrestlers uh, that, that are still around from the old days. Did they get along? Um, I think they had their moments. <laughs> uh, I think they got along pretty much. So I don't think they were tight. I don't think they were close. Like I said, uh, Gorman wanted to go off and go do, um, you know, and, and, and kind of party a little bit and do stuff like that. And Goliath was a, a home buddy. Goliath wanted to go home to his family and didn't feel any great need to, mm. you know, to do that. Um, I never heard stories about them hanging out together or anything like that. I think they, I think they realized that they were good for business for each other. Uh, but when the time came into the 1990s, when it was time to go their separate ways, they went their separate ways. And, and there's one story that, that's, um, if I can correct that, um, when they did the, when Eddie Ihorn died a couple of years ago, uh, Dave Meltzer did a, uh, an article on the IWA and, uh, they mentioned that, um, Goliath had worked there, which is not true. He actually didn't. There was another guy that looked a lot like Scott Irwin. That was actually on the tapes that, that wrestled as Goliath there. Um, but um, by that time, Goliath was was happy to be uh, in the area here with his family and his grandchildren, and he did not want to go out any place. But I think, like, um, you know, I, I, I never felt that, that Bobby Eaton and Dennis Condry hung out a lot together or a lot of the guys hung out a lot together. Uh, outside when they were working. And I think it was, I think it was, I think they were friendly, but I think it was, it was basically a, a good business decision for both of them. One thing that I am pleased about is there is a lot, not to say a lot, but there is quite a bit of video 
that's up on YouTube and around that people can um, watch a little bit. Uh, there's some some old eight millimeter Olympic Auditorium stuff from the '70s that's up on YouTube on the WWE Network and uh, up there. You can also see the time that Black Gorman uh, went to Madison Square Garden and wrestled uh, Victor Rivera. And uh, there's uh, actually a, a weird little clip in the early 1960s. A very young Black Gorman uh, appeared in uh, the the Treasure of Dracula a Santo movie, and you can actually find uh, his match with Santo on YouTube. And there's a couple of great ones from uh, from New Japan, and and there was at one point, uh, and I haven't seen her for a while, but there was a world class match that had Kerry Von Erich versus black gorman and that was really interesting because again you talk about adopting your style for uh, the persons you worked with i mean um gorman knew that he was there to put over the promoter's kid and that's what he did he made the promoter's kid look good but he didn't flop around or make himself look bad and that's that's the thing that i always admired about them they were really professional professional guys they really really um you know, knew what had to be done. They were very protective of the business. And I think that it's, I, I hope that the, the guys don't wind up being forgotten. And I'm very, it, it makes me feel good to know that, that people are asking about them from time to time. And um, like I said, I hope that uh, people realize that maybe, maybe they didn't look like the fiercest two guys in the entire world, but they were two of the best uh, wrestlers together as a team and, and my favorite tag team of all time. There he is, friend of the show, Dan Farron. I'm sure you'll be hearing him back on the show pretty soon. I'm sure you'll be hearing him actually in the co-host chair again pretty soon because I really enjoyed that time he was in the co-host chair a little while back here. But with that, Kurt, let's now move on to a conversation, part of the continuing conversation between myself and Jerry Gray. Of course, Jerry is battling stage four cancer. If you'd like to help him out, if you enjoy these segments on the show, every dollar helps you can go to tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy. Every dollar helps. Medical bills, food, whatever it is, Jerry's depleted his funds. He could really use everyone's help. If you enjoyed this segment, consider lending a hand and helping Jerry out. But let's now go to this segment. Jerry will be talking about Japan and, of course, Jake the Snake Roberts, as well as other topics. Let's go to the Golden Boy, Jerry Gray. We are back here again this week with Jerry Gray, and actually Jerry and I were just having an off-air conversation, and I stopped it mid-sentence, and I said, let's just start recording, let's get this on the air. So I'll ask you the question that we were talking about right when I said, hold on, let's just stop. When you were over in Japan, what percentage of the Japanese press, the Japanese wrestling press, spoke English? The main one I remember, and now I can't even remember his name, who's the guy that always came here and hung with all the... Hang and all of them. Jimmy Suzuki. That Jimmy Suzuki, yeah. Yeah, I remember him really good. But um, um, they spoke pretty good English, actually. Even the fans did, because I used to let a lot of the um the young kid fans in my room, because all the other Americans would be real mean to them, you know. I'd let end up having like ten of them in my room hanging with me. There's <laughs> a lot of the Japanese fans and fire photographers too. Everybody really was hanging with me. But yeah, they spoke good English. Even the kids did back then. How would you explain that? How would you explain the relationship? you could have over there as a gaijin with the Japanese fans? I felt sorry for them because, I mean, these guys were really, I mean, like Rick Steiner would shake their hand and then you could hear the bones popping, like little kids squeezing their hands so hard. Little kids? I'd tell them to knock it off. Oh, yeah. Little, any kid, he didn't care who it was, and they'd, he'd just squeeze their hand hard as he could, and then they'd, ask, they'd hand him, you know, the nice picture like they do, you know, the presents or whatever, he'd throw it like a Frisbee. And I was like, man, you're not going to get heat over here. 
no, there's no reason to do that stuff. They're not going to boo you. A lot of those guys did that though, and then I would, I'd end up having them in my room though, and then they'd take me to those uh, Japanese wrestling stores, you know, because there was no such thing back then in America. Yeah. <laughs> I was really getting into that. I mean, it was cool. What was that like for you though? I mean, here you are, you're someone who grew up oh. a wrestling fan, you're in the wrestling business, but you're still a fan, and all of a sudden, yeah. you find out there's a store, and then you go up in there. What was that experience like? Oh, yeah, I had all the kids walking with me and took me over there. Oh, it was awesome. And then they, they actually recognized me, the people, because there's not many Americans walking around, you know, big guys. And then they, they gave me, like, some stuff free, the people that owned the store. <laughs> some of the, like, keychains and stuff, New Japan. Well, I can't even remember a bunch of stuff, though. But those kids were really awesome. They'd give me all kinds of nice, uh, they'd always call your room no matter what time it was. And I have a present for you. <laughs> and then I'd be like, oh, God, I'm sleeping. Well, okay, come on up. And then I would let them in. Everybody else would be telling them, get out of here. Don't call my room no more. But then, uh, yeah, it was cool, though. I, I got pictures of them still, too. They gave me like like 10 kids standing there with me in my room and everything. <laughs> it was funny. All the Americans would be like, what are you hanging with them punks for? And be like, man, I like wrestling. You guys might not, but I do. But anyway, yeah, it was cool though. They plus they'd help me too ordering stuff because back then I don't know how it is now, but I mean you can order anything in the restaurants in some of those little towns, you know. And the kids would go in there and speak Japanese for me and order, make sure it's cooked and whatever it is, the food, you know, make sure I'm not getting some kind of weird animal or something. <laughs> Did you go to Ribera, but, uh, the steakhouse? I never went there. I was too cheap. I was like, <laughs> not paying them that much money. I was trying to save money because everything cost enough, you know, the prices. But I did find some smaller. If you just walk out of the hotels and stuff, even in Tokyo, you can find really good, you know, restaurants for good prices and everything. But I didn't ever go there for some reason. A lot of those guys didn't go. I think it was all Japan went more than the New Japan guy, seems like. Because I never, all the guys were cheap on the tours I'd be on, like Murdoch and all them. He didn't, he probably been there a million times already. He wasn't wanting to spend no money on nothing. He had like sponsors and the the gangsters or whatever paying for everything. I even had a couple of those guys too. The they call them gangsters, but Yakuza, Yakuza. And then uh, yeah, they if they're a fan of yours or whatever, they'd take you to pay for everything. And then that was funny because one time they just wanted me to come, and I was kind of like nervous. I think it was the first time I was ever there, and I was thinking, man, this is kind of weird. I don't want to go with just them only. You know, they're gonna blow me away or something. They're missing the fingers and everything. And then I said, I want, can I have some other guys come with me? I think it was every time I went there, I had, I wanted some other guy to come with me. Like, and they were like, no, we just want you. And I said, no, no come on, bring the sheep herders with me. It was funny because they were like, no, they're not good, no good technique. And I was like, it doesn't matter. They're nice guys. <laughs> they hated them. I was like, they're nice guys. Come on, bring them to my friends. And then they finally brought them. And it was funny though, because the guy was mad the whole time. I don't want them. And then <laughs> and I was like, they're big stars and NGs in America. But anyway, yeah, they would pay for everything. The crews would give you all kinds of presents and everything. And I'd get all my stuff away to uh, cheapers or whoever because they'd give me like real expensive sake and I didn't drink. So I'd be like giving all my presents back to cheapers or whoever wanted to drink. <laughs> it was funny. Was it kayfabe or was it not kayfabe, the relationship you had with any of the fans or any of the sponsors over there? Um, You mean you talking like uh, I mean, like, if they're all in your room talking to you, are you shooting with them, or are you telling them what's really going on, or are you keeping kayfabe? No, they don't even ask anything like that. They're just like thrilled to be. The main thing they just want to do is just look at you, and you know, that's, they didn't even ask anything like that at all. Like, oh, is it real? Never. Not one time. Nobody ever asked me like anything like that. No, they mainly just bring. They had all their cameras, you know, the kids, and they'd bring like belts. I didn't even see stuff like that back then either. Like the imitation belts they had over there, they had like an NWA 
belt like it looked just like it the kids did and put it on me and took pictures of it i still have a picture of that somewhere one of them kids gave me i remember one kid always say you remember me i'm nagoya boy <laughs> i always remember his name nagoya boy but yeah i'm sure i met the uh Saito, the one was just on your show because i mean i'm sure if he was working for which magazine do you say you work for fumi Saito weekly. was with weekly pro wrestling throughout the 80s Oh, yeah, I'm sure I did. See, they made a signed contract, too, like a real thick contract that said you're not allowed to do any interviews with any any of that stuff. You know, New Japan did. Get out of here. You're not allowed to talk. Yeah, you're not allowed to talk to, I mean, like one of the big things they had in the contract. It said you're not allowed to do any, yeah. So I don't think I ever did really talk to them. They might, they might have took pictures of the matches or something, but, yeah, they hadn't signed stuff like that, saying no photographer, no uh, interviews unless they, you know, Unless they have, you know, assign you to it or whatever. New Japan, yeah. Yeah, I was going to tell you, too, the first time I ever first time I ever worked for New Japan, really, was when uh, they flew me over to Honolulu, Hawaii, for that, was that Aloha Stadium, that big one? Yeah, me and Muda, they flew over from Tampa, and then I'd never even worked for New Japan yet, but I already had a date that one of the scouts came over and picked me to come over. I can't remember his name, but he worked for Anuki and Sagaguchi. Anyway, he picked me to come, and then, so then they sent me to Honolulu with Muda, to work with him and it was weird because i didn't it was like a million people in the dressing room because lars anderson ran it with uh, uh Maivia. what's her name uh, yeah her they ran it though and then i yeah. guess the nookie was some <laughs> kind of partnership with yeah i can't the remember grandmother, and was, otherwise known as. Yeah, yeah i think he was standing there too rock a little kid with afro but anyway the uh yeah they uh it was like a, everybody was on that show i mean I, there were so many guys. I don't know how they even because the crowd. I don't know how many place held, but it wasn't really. It didn't look that good to me because it was like a huge place, you know. But Anuki was partners with them on the show for some reason. I don't know what that was all about, but everybody was on the show. Like I said, uh, the original Sheik was there, Brody, everybody, Mark Lund, plus a bunch of guys from the United States like Mondo Guerrero, everybody. I mean, there must have been. I think that Tom Hankin might have even been there too. Because there were so many people, you couldn't even meet them all. I mean, there was every name. Uncle Elmer was there, Lawler, a million people. I don't know how they paid, but I, the weirdest thing was I got like $1,400 for that, just that one match. Who paid and you, I, New Japan I, or, or the office? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Sagaguchi, New Japan. But the weirdest thing was I ended up being in the click with them because um, I flew with Muda, and I didn't know. I mean, I had never met any of those guys yet, uh, Brody or any of them. So then I ended up sitting with, uh, and I didn't know what a, uh, you know, a god a nookie was like. I heard later stories, like even big names say that they'd rush him in. They never even got to talk to him. Like some of the big, real big names would say, like a nookie just came in with an entourage at the arena, and then they'd rush him in and out, and nobody really got to talk to him. But I sat He's there Mick right Jagger. there with him. He's Mick Jagger. Yeah, I know what it comes down to. He was. Yeah, that's he why is. it was so he weird. Still is. <laughs> that's the thing. I know. I know. And I was sitting there right there with him. Though. I didn't even know all these stories. I had to see him when I was a kid in Ohio against Johnny Powers, you know. But I didn't know he was that huge like that. And then. He was sitting there, though, right next to me, Muda, Sagaguchi, just all the Japanese and me in this one section. You know, nobody came near him. And then uh, it was so weird because he was actually talking to me perfect English, telling me, like, this is the Japanese style. You're getting ready to come here. I mean, you know, he don't usually talk to anybody, like, really. And then uh, I didn't realize what, you know, what he was really doing. I mean, really, that was, like, not unheard of what he was doing, helping me, like, telling me, like, when you come here, when you come to Japan in two months, whatever, to do this, you know, you're doing good, but just a little bit faster, it's a little bit stiffer. Don't worry about the audience. They're not going to boo and everything. And then he told me a lot of stuff. And then the weirdest thing was uh, Fujinami was a huge name, you know, like number two, Babyface Papa. He's over there taking uh, Anuki's boots off for him, unlacing them. And I'd never heard the customs, you know, they had 
like that. Yeah, that's <laughs> so I kind of started laughing for Ricky Dozen. Yeah, and I started laughing though. I was sitting right next to him. <laughs> I thought it was like a joke because I never seen nothing like it. You know what the hell? The guy taking his boots off for. Him. And I started kind of laughing a little bit. And then they should have told me, you know, Nagasaki and Muda, you know, <laughs> you know, this is kind of what you're going to expect, you know. But I was just like, oh my god, I kind of laughed, and then I felt figured out, oh shit, because they ended up told him to quit when I laughed. <laughs> And then I was like, oh God, I know now not to do that again. And then it was just weird, though, because I was like, oh my God, that much respect. Jesus, even the big star. I mean, it's not like the young boy. <laughs> Fujinami was a huge name, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, I couldn't believe the payoff for that horrible crowd. And, I was like, and then they asked me what I got. And that's the one thing I learned, too. Don't ever tell anybody else what you get, you know, because Mondo Guerrero was there. And I heard they were getting like 50 bucks and stuff. I don't even know where they came there that far from wherever they live, California or whatever. Well, I guess Hawaii, but still for 50 bucks. He was like, Man, you come over from Florida. He said, it's horrible payoffs here. I was like, are they already paying me like cash, like 1200 whatever it was, 1400 He was like, what? <laughs> he got so mad. He was like, what? I was like, oh, shit, no more telling that. I remember Tom Pritchard got mad at me, too, because I didn't understand, you know, they shouldn't ask you, though, either. It's like put you on the spot back in Oregon. Yeah. Don Owens paid so good for the main event. But the first match or whatever would get like, you know, for the Portland Sports Arena, there'd be like, I forget how many I held, two or 3,000 people packed in that bowling alley. And then if you're in the main event, though, the payoff was totally different. I got like 400 bucks just for that Saturday night because me and Tom Pritchard were the main event against somebody, Rip Oliver and Ken Nagasaki, I think. And then Mondo was like in the first matches or whatever, and we all rode together. And then Mondo said, how much you guys get last night? And I was like, 400. And he went, what? I got 80 bucks. And then Pritchard looked at me like, shit, don't tell him that, man. And I was like, what? Jeez, we're all friends. I was like, what the hell? But it's I couldn't believe the difference. It's always Mondo, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah, I know Mondo again. Yeah, but he always was asking. <laughs> yeah, Mondo was a troublemaker. No, no. But he was always asking how much the pay was. <laughs> a lot of guys didn't ask that, but it's like, I usually told him, but then I learned, though, don't, don't tell people anymore because you're going to start a bunch of crap, you know? <laughs> So anyway, yeah, Pritchard told me, don't tell him that, man. It hurt his feelings. So I was like, well, shit, what am I going to tell him? Were you around Chavo much? Yeah, we didn't get along too good. He, uh, it was uh, me, and, yeah, me and somebody. I got along with all the other ones, but he, one time we, uh, well, it was just because I was like, he's been in Japan all those times, and he'd always complain about my salt, side salto because he said that um, he'd come back to the dress room and said, Save that shit for Japan, man. You drove me into the mat. I was like, oh, my God. What the hell? A side suplex? What the hell? Side salto, you know? And I was like, I didn't like him too good after that. I was like, ah, what a wimp. <laughs> I mean, it was a, I mean, how, how can you hurt somebody with a side suplex? I mean, Jesus. Yeah, and then he was always complaining about something. I wasn't around him a whole lot, but, yeah. He was good to work with, but it was just the complaining part afterwards. I forgot about the whiny stuff with him, too, <laughs> with the Among Us stories last time. But anyway, uh, I couldn't believe he complained about that all the times he'd been in Japan. I was like, you got to be kidding me. That You think that hurts? Jeez. Yeah, I remember one time, too, I was going to tell you about Rick Stein or something he did. Uh, Dr. Death had him. It was his first tour ever over there. Uh, Rick Steiner's, you know, and me and Dr. Death had already been there a bunch. And then Rick was all, Dr. Death had him all, you know, psyched up and everything to kill everybody and hurt him and everything. And then they were actually shooting in the dress rooms too. Like there was amateur pads in the, some of the locker rooms and Dr. Death and Steiner were doing like shoot 
matches and Steiner came out on top every time pretty much. Really? I remember Bushwhackers. Yeah, Bushwhackers remember that too. He was telling me that not too long ago. He remembered that. And I was like, what the hell? Steiner was, well, he was huge then though. Remember Steiner shoulders and everything. Yeah. And Doc had already been in pro wrestling for a while, holding it. So anyway, yeah, but he told Steiner, you know, do this, hurt, hurt all these guys. And you don't get that. I mean, you don't go that far. <laughs> Just if they try to test you, then you, you know, beat him up a little bit i mean he was actually trying but he did i don't know if he broke the guy's neck or something he did to this guy because doc told him you know hurt this guy some short guy i can't remember his name you might not even know him he wasn't a big name but he was older ocean knocker or something like that i can't remember his name but it was on all the magazines it showed like a series of pictures where how he dropped it straight on his neck and broke his neck steiner to this guy first tour ever and it was because so dr like, death told him to yeah yeah dr death and you never know back then why. I mean, maybe it was like competition, you know, for your spot. You never know. So the guys back then, what they're, what they're up to, you know, it's like Steiner was definitely like the same type of style as Dr. Death. But it was like, if he hurts everybody, they're not going to want to bring him back because they didn't really like him too good. I remember Rick Steiner the first time he was there because he was hurting everybody. And then he was a uh, jackass too, Rick was, because uh, we hung around a lot. And then he, uh, he uh maida was they'd always be in the the hallways of the locker rooms and stuff with all their you know the uwf guys with all their you know kickboxing pads and all that stuff and maida and tuck out and all them be out there kicking the pads you know <laughs> and he's and maida's out there and i'd already been there before maida already liked me and steiner said uh we were watching him kick the pad you know and, and steiner said jerry said you're a pussy or something to, to maida and Maeda just looked at him though, because he knew I, you know, he already knew me from years before, a couple of years before that, working with me all the time. And he looked at Steiner like he wanted, he was going to kill him. He didn't even look at me. It was like, oh shit, I want to see this one. But they never put him against uh, Steiner for some reason. I would like to see that much because he hated Steiner after that. <laughs> Jerry, Jerry said, you're only a puzzle, you asshole. Shut the hell up, man. Was he in the <laughs> anyway. when you were there? Did you know him before Japan? No, no. That's why I met him. I met him in the, uh, what was it? I flew from Florida and then I met him in LA airport. I, I didn't even know he was a wrestler. I never heard of him. You know, I didn't, he was nobody then Rick Steiner, but he was sitting there. We were both late waiting for the connection to go to Tokyo from LA. I think it was. And then I flew with Bushwhackers from Tampa. That's what it was. Sheep earners. And then they knew him, I guess from Louisiana or whatever. Cause I didn't know who the hell he was. We were just giving each other dirty looks. You know, he's just another passenger sitting there. I thought waiting for the connection. <laughs> and then they go, Rick or Rob or whatever they called him. And then I was like, oh, fuck, he's one of the wrestlers. Jesus. No, I didn't even, never met him before. But he was, uh, he was everybody. He was a bully, really, everybody on that tour. We ended up liking each other later, but he kept, uh, he was on so many roids and everything. Then it was like freezing, snowing outside in, in Japan on that tour bus, you know, and he kept leaving the windows open all the time. And all the guys were getting sick and everything because he's so hot from steroids or whatever the hell was wrong with him. And then, uh, he kept leaving the windows open on the bus though while we're driving and we're, everybody's freezing and everything and then everybody got sick of they they were scared to tell him though. Everybody was George Wells was on that tour. Who else was there? He snapped on the tour. You know, somebody usually cracks halfway through the tour where they finally yes. snap and go Yeah, he he, he cracked. Yeah, he cracked in the end of it because they were being kind of Steiner mainly was the one doing all this shit. He was sitting right behind Steiner and uh, he got really sick from the freezing cold coming on the window on the bus all the time. So he finally snapped at the end of the tour and started, he stood up on the bus and started screaming how prejudiced everybody was and everything. I remember when Dr. Death, he said, you got anything to say, doctor? Or whatever, doctor. And he goes, uh, Steve Williams said, take the floor, brother. You got the floor. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, damn, even doctor. I said, fuck it. Let him talk. 
Anyway, it was pretty funny. And then I finally told Steiner, shut the fucking window, because I didn't talk much. I was always quiet, you know, and I, I yelled at him, shut the fucking window. I finally just snapped, and he, he shut the window, and Dr. Dust, I guess he told you, brother. <laughs> and Steiner just looked like, fuck, just like, not just let me so quiet. He's going to kill me or something. Anyway, yeah, and then he always remembered that. Oh, you fucking asshole, when you get mad. <laughs> Shut the window, fucking asshole. Anyway. He had the craziest yeah, the, shoulders back then, like 86, oh, 87. Jesus. It was incredible. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then we went to the gym, too, because over there, <laughs> there wasn't no such thing as gyms. I mean, it was like, I don't know who the hell, this gym we'd go to, it was like more like a YMCA from the 60s or something <laughs> in Tokyo. We'd all go there, and uh, I never seen nothing like it. Uh, Steiner would be doing uh they got all the weights in the whole gym, so nobody else could even lift weights. You know, the old men or whoever were in there, like YMCA, and uh, we're all in there. Sheepherders, Doctor De Steiner, and he's got all the. What do you have? Like I couldn't believe it. It was like probably three fifteen or more than that, even behind his neck doing presses, no racks or anything. He just picked it up, put put it behind his neck, and started doing behind the neck presses with three fifteen, and then he stood up on the bench and doing bent over rows with it. I mean, 315, it was like 100 pounds, like, like anybody else would do, you know. And nobody else could even come near that. Dr. Dunn, I mean, what he was doing, we were just like, holy shit. What kind of steroids you take him, man? Jesus. What was the deal with steroids yeah, you, in Japan, though? Like, in terms of American guys going oh, over there? Oh, shit. Those, you wouldn't even believe some of the shit, because you could never get any pot over there. I didn't realize that when I first went there. I didn't even know what withdrawals were. I didn't think you get withdrawals from pot, you know. I'd be oh, there like five weeks or whatever. They locked up Paul McCartney. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, right I had long hair, right when I'd get to the uh, Japanese, air, the Tokyo airport, they'd say, you don't have any marijuana? And they'd be like, no. Or they smelled you. And then, <laughs> no, and this is, this is how crazy Kevin Kelly was. Nails, you know, Kevin Kelly? Kevin Walker. Yeah. Yeah, him. I can't tell his last name, but yeah, he. Uh, we were good friends from Oregon. I was there with him. So then I, I seen him in L.A. the first time I went there. It was his first tour, too. And he, uh, we're flying over there. But he's had pot with him in the L.A. airport. He went to a storage room in the airport and smoked. I said, hell no, I ain't going to go ahead and do it. I ain't doing that shit. He's in there smoking inside the airport, the rest of his joint or whatever. He goes, because you can't take it over there. I was like, yeah, I didn't plan on bringing anything. He's crazy. So then we get all the way over there, and he's going crazy. Ken McCallie is, because he really loves pot, you know. So the whole time, he's asking the cab driver, everyone, where do I get marijuana, dope, drugs, blah, 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 all this stuff, asking them. And they'd put their hands together like handcuffs, you know. They show the handcuffs like, and then finally, he just kept asking, asking, asking. So they, this cab driver takes us to the, uh, somewhere down, uh, what's that place called? Rapongi in Tokyo, like the... Yeah. yeah. Okay. He takes us over there and gives us a note he writes in Japanese. So we go, he drops us off at the Hard Rock Cafe and we go in there and it's got some kind of note. We don't know what it says. We think it's like how to get marijuana. I'm just going along with it. I can care less. Really. I'm just like, I ain't getting fucking thrown in prison for this shit. So then he he gives us to the waitress and the waitress goes, This says to take you to something. It wasn't even what we he asked for, you know, marijuana. <laughs> He goes, no, I want marijuana. She goes, what do you guys like to order? You know, they couldn't speak real good English. He's like, marijuana, dope, drugs we want. And then I was like, man, don't say me. And then he's telling the waitress this, though, at Hard Rock. And she's looking like, what the hell? Crazy Americans? And then uh, <laughs> she goes, no, no, I don't know. What you, I don't know where you get this. No, no, not here. And then, so then we go outside and he's asking, it was like, over there, there was like a lot of English girls, the hookers and stuff. And he was asking them for drugs too. No, you can't get that here, honey. But <laughs> So he's going crazy. He starts smoking cigarettes finally. Hold but on, then, they you know what? English, those... or they were actually English. Yeah, they're both. 
they were English girls. Like that's why I was like, what the hell? They were from England. Like you know, they were hookers. Those standing, yeah, standing around the. So I was just like, what the hell? This is weird. And then, so what happened? The, I think that was that's the same tour because Duggan came like a couple weeks into the tour. He didn't stay very long from Mid-South. He only came for two weeks. So then he gets there. So he's like, uh, he had his girlfriend mail him pot to the Keogh Plaza. I was like, that's fucking worse than fucking bringing it with it. Seems like, but he got, yeah, he got away with it. He, he had pot. And then we were all, yeah, we were all going crazy. I remember all the Americans went into the hotel room and uh, put like uh, towels underneath the doors. Like, oh my God, like that's really going to help. And then pot, you know, and then he's smoking it and we're all, but I could never get hit. I thought it was a rib. I was trying to inhale it and I couldn't get anything out of this joint. Like everybody else was coughing and everything. I never got one hit. I don't know what the hell was going on. <laughs> Anyway, I never did get high. What do you mean you couldn't get anything out of it? I don't know. I was sucking on that joint, and I I could never get any smoke out of it. And then everybody else was acting like they were, you know, getting good hits. And I was like, I don't know what the hell's going on. This is a big rib or something. (laughs) Because I never could figure out. I never did get high in Japan, but I didn't. You know, I wasn't worried about it. So then that time, the only time I ever said anybody have marijuana in Japan, Doug, he would never go without it for, you know, that long, no way. So Kevin Kelly was like in heaven that night. And then uh, Nails, yeah. He was funny as shit, though. Trying to ask people for marijuana, like cab drivers, Hard Rock Cafe, the restaurant. I mean, the waitresses, everybody. And nobody. Everybody just looked like they were scared to death. Like, oh, my God. Marijuana. Drugs. And Anookie, this is one story I always want to tell, because I only heard one person ever say this. And it was Vader on one of his interviews. He did shoot interview. He said that Anookie sent him women, you know. I don't know. I don't know if they were hookers or whatever, but women. Once he got to be such a big star there, the Nookie sent him women over to his room and everything. And I was like, "That's fucking weird," because I never heard of anybody. But the first time I was there, after I told you Nookie was nice to me in Hawaii and all that, talking to me a lot. And I don't know if it was because Matsuda, the connection with him that I knew and everything good or something. But um, first time I'm there in uh, Japan, everybody told me before I went there, you never get any women over there. So don't even worry about that. You know, they hate you to be with the, you know, their women. Japanese, they don't like that. You know, at all. Americans coming over there, and I was like, ah, whatever, I don't care. And then, so this these uh, this man calls my room at Keogh Plaza. You know, first tour there, first week I think, first night maybe. I don't remember. Might have been Cork and Hall. But he, uh, the guy goes, oh, can we come to your room? I have two girls. And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, come on up. And they're both, I mean, beautiful. And they go, which one of it do you want? And I was like, what the hell? One of them spoke better English. I don't want to hurt her feelings. I was like, yeah, you, <laughs> whatever. That was so fucking weird, though. And then they told me later that the nookie, that's why I set that up, but you don't want nobody to know, you know? Somebody told me that. And then all the guys would be, they'd always come, though, that same girl all the time everywhere, and all the guys would be trying to find women, going crazy, all the, you know, all the, like, everybody. Steiner, everybody was going crazy for that four or five weeks because they couldn't get any girls. And then she'd really, kayfabe, too, when she'd do it, this girl. She'd come and sneak in. Nobody was allowed to see her. It was weird as hell. She'd come, like, late when I was in Tokyo or whatever, late at night, and come up to my room, make sure nobody's around and other wrestlers. So then one night they were all standing outside the doors, though. Sheepherder, Steiner, Dr. Death, everybody, because they're all going crazy and wanting women, you know? Here she comes walking down the hall, you know, my girl. And then she she sees my doors open, so she slips in my room real quick, and they're all going crazy. They're so fucking mad at me, like like I'm a fence builder. You know what that is, right? It's the name they call, the old-timers would call, like you're supposed to share the girls, you know? with each other but if you if you uh don't let the other guys have them back in the old older guys would call you a fence builder <laughs> maybe a little defense around the rat you romance them and don't give them share with the other guy 
So anyway, yeah, that's what they, so they thought I was doing that, like just keeping her from me and not sharing with nobody else. So they were also fucking mad because I went in the room then. And the next day they were telling everybody on the bus, like, I was like, be quiet, man. They don't like this shit. Cause there's Japanese guys on the bus too. with us. like the referee. What was his name? Peter Taka. You know, the referee, this kind of looks like a Toro Tanaka kind of, the stocky Takahashi, Peter, whatever his name was. He'd be on the bus with us, though, and they're all mad as hell because they think that I got a girl and was like, I got all the women I could share with them. I was like, what the hell? So they're telling everybody real loud, yeah, Jerry had that girl. Where'd you get that girl at? I was like, man, quiet. And then everybody's looking at the Japanese guys are looking like, what? Ricky Choshi didn't like that shit at all, I remember. He gave me a dirty look. And then, he's so not then, even uh, Japanese. But, isn't he? What is he, Korean? Choshi's Korean, yeah. Yeah, he, I don't know, he just didn't like any of us, I don't think, because he never looked happy about anything. But the uh, funniest part was, uh, so then Sheep Herder asked me um, if they can just come in my closet and watch, you know, speak in the clo- out of the closet and watch me with her. <laughs> well, I think it was Butch. Yeah, Butch, the Butch, you know, the, the other Sheep Not Luke Williams, but Bush, Butch Miller. So he goes, uh, mate, can I just come in your closet? When next time she's here, and I just I just want to watch, you know. I'm so you know, I have no women at you know, all this time. We're here five weeks or whatever. I was like, oh my god, this is weird, man. So he goes, just let me meet her, mate. Let me meet her, shake her hand. I mean, they were going crazy because no women. And then uh, I let him meet her, and I was trying to hook up the other guy, but she was just like, no, look like your father or something. No, 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 I don't want the other guys. <laughs> So he was like, come on, mate, let me stay in the car. I said, nah, man, that's weird. I don't want you watching the closet. Anyway, so yeah, that's what Vader said, though, on his, uh, one of his shoot interviews, that um, Anuki would send him women and all kinds of stuff. I was like, damn, I never, I never you, heard man. any of Mick Jagger. I know. Yeah, I know he is. I mean, he was, it was weird just to hear him. I didn't realize how he was and the way he talked to me so much in Hawaii that was weird because nobody else would even come near him either. I noticed like none of the big names, nobody, Sheik, he just kind of looked from far away, the Sheik, to, when he walked by us. And I was like, damn, what the hell? Everybody like, cared to come near Anoki. You said he spoke really good English. Describe talking to Anoki in English because I've never heard him speak in English. I've I know. videos out there. Yeah. He works like he, I don't know, to me, he just, he was talking a, a lot and he was saying, he watched my match with Muda on the monitor in the dress room. And then right when I came back to the dress room, he started telling me, you're getting ready to do, come to Japan. So, you know, a little bit different style, just stiffer and you know, broken kind of, I mean, a lot better than what I've heard him do on the college or somewhere where the WWE was he in the hall of fame or something. Yeah. Yeah. That was really, that was a work big time. <laughs> But the, uh, no, he said, like, a lot of everything made sense. He, he talked better than Matsuda, even, actually. I don't know if you ever heard Hiro Matsuda talk, but he's, I mean, he, he could talk, definitely, a lot better than what he has on the Califi Alley. I think he was there, too, wasn't he? Uh, Nookie. He, he came out on entourage and left, right? He didn't even, I think he, I heard he didn't even sit down on the tables or nothing. But anyway, yeah, he, but he at the shows though he never did that. Like when I got to Japan, he didn't do stuff like that then. But in the ring, he would say funny stuff though. Tell me, I even have a tape with me and Jim Duggan against Anuki and what's that other guy's name? He used to be Cobra. Him and Anuki against me and um, Duggan. And uh, I the, the tape you can see Anuki's laughing when he's saying stuff to me. He's saying, "Come on, cocksucker! Come on, <laughs> son of a bitch!" So all kinds of funny stuff. I was, I was laughing too. You could tell on the tape when they throw those the streamers in the ring at you, you know. And then Duggan, they, they didn't like him too good over there. <laughs> it was so funny because he'd be the biggest star, you know, of all Mid South and all that. And then they get over there, and it's like I'm the main event now. And Duggan was like, 
they, they tried to push him in the main event, but he's, oh God, if you could ever see that match. Only like 30 seconds of it's on YouTube. Somebody put it on there. But the parts of the match, he screwed up so bad. I mean, he was talking just like I'm talking to you that loud, saying like, cross body. And you could see his lips moving and you could hear it on the, the TV taping. It was a TV show too, TV taping. You could hear him telling George um, to kind of the, um, that spot. He said, cross body. And then he throws him in and they both do a cross body. Horrible. I mean, can you imagine Duggan doing a cross body, first of all? So then he throws him in again. You never do that, you know, especially Japan. The same move again. Throws him in again. Cross body. Like, don't fuck it up this time. Like he's telling him really loud this time. Same thing again happens. They both do this cross body at the same time again. I mean, three, I think he did three screw up in a, in a row and then he tagged me in. I was like, oh my God, this is embarrassing. Yeah, he ended up not being pushed after that. <laughs> Over there, they were going to have him against a nookie or some big match or something, but that, that was like terrible on me. You know, because that style over there is not really, you know, USA and all that in Japan. The way I think it was in Hiroshima, too, is where the, the match was, or one of the places, Nagasaki or Hiroshima, one of them, where we uh, were doing the tag. So it was weird, though. Some of the guys would be such big names here in America over there, though. They wouldn't get over at all because no technique, and that's what they wanted over there. How did Kevin Kelly do with that style? Oh, I like Kevin Kelly, but oh my god, that was and he's a tough guy, too. I think I told that before. Like, like uh, Fujiwara is a small guy, you know, Fujiwara, and he looked pretty old then, too, even. But man, he's he tough. stretched the hell out, he stretched the hell out of Kevin Kelly, and he was like 180 pounds, maybe. I don't know, he's. Not big at all. And Ken McGalley won a lot of tough man contests. He's a badass. And then I don't know what happened, but he just he kept being real cocky to the guys. And and he wasn't a good rec- wrestler. I mean, technique at all or anything. I don't know if you ever seen him. <laughs> Even when he was nails, he still wasn't. But, I mean, he's just the type that's not good <laughs> in the ring, whatever. But, he, uh, yeah, he tried to. He was doing that muscle stuff, he, making, making his muscles to the audience or whatever. And they, they hate that over there, especially the wrestlers. <laughs> they really hate it. So uh, Fujiwara stretches them. I mean, he just laid on the mat for like five minutes. He couldn't even move. He just had him land there. It was the most boring match you ever seen because it was real. <laughs> he wouldn't let him up. He just laid there. And he finally got over the tag me. And then uh, Fujiwara started working with me. Then. <laughs> and then uh, we got back to the dressing room. And Maeda told Kevin Kelly off like hell. He said, he buried him. He goes, uh, you have good coach, pointing to me, you know. You have good coach. He said, you no good. Don't worry about muscle. Don't worry about muscle. Maeda told him off. I mean, he wanted to kill Maeda, but he knew better after seeing uh, Maeda's a big guy. You know, and seeing Fujiwara killed him almost. <laughs> and then he seen Maeda, he's probably thinking, shit, this guy murdered me. But Maeda just kept putting him down, saying, don't worry about muscles. No more. You need to learn from him, coach. You know, and he couldn't speak to good English, but it was just funny. So, because he was like saying over and over, no good coach. You have no good coach. I love Maeda and that group, but especially Maeda's charisma. Oh, From yeah. the moment he oh, got back yeah. after the original UWF break until the second UWF yeah. break with the shoot kick to Ricky Choshu's face, he is oh, just, yeah. I mean, everyone just, out of everyone on that New Japan roster, the fans react to him and that group. Fujiwara, of course you have, oh, yeah. Hiko Takata. They react to all of them like they're real, and I, I totally dig that. Yeah, they were good too. And for some reason, I don't know if it's because we had some. I wish I had. There's no tape of that though, because it's funny too. Anuki would never put Maeda. I think he was a little bit jealous of him. 
because uh, by a lot jealous of him because he was over so good. So he would never put him on. We'd have like house shows every night. Me and my would be working each other. I, I don't know if he requested to work with me or what, but it was just like, how in the hell? And everybody else would be looking at the, you know, it'd be up on the paper, like who you're wrestling. And they were all not wanting to wrestle him, you know, even the tough guys, you could just tell, they'd be like, fuck, hoping their name wasn't next to Maida or Fujiwara or somebody like that. And I'd be hoping it was him because I was, I mean, I liked the stuff he did. And then, uh, They'd be like, oh, thank God. And they all remember me like, oh, you got, oh, boy. I was like, I don't care. What the hell? Good. And my leg got hurt real bad over there, I told you, in a match for just trying to do a Boston Crab. You know how they do the counter to that? I just twisted it. It wasn't nobody's fault. I think it was with Maida, too. It was me and Steiner against Maida and whoever, Takata, maybe. And I just went to do the Boston Crab and twist. I had bad knees anyway from amateur wrestling. And then I hurt my knee right then. But I just kept, they like that, too. I didn't know. Like, they really respect that if you keep working after you're hurt and don't go home. Like, And then I just stayed there the, the rest of the three weeks. That's when Chris Benoit, who was a young boy, and he kept bringing me ice all the time and helping me all the time. Him and that other, Max Payne. Daryl Yeah, him. Yeah, he was both in the dojo with Chris. Chris Benoit, yeah. Yeah, yeah, both of them, though, kept bringing me bags of ice every minute and helping me, and then it was just like, uh, and, and uh, I think you respected that, though, and that's why I told you you gave me the, uh, what's that slap called? <laughs> the slap of uh, he whatever. He transfers his power. power to Yeah, you. yeah. So, hold on, hold on. Antonio Inoki spoke English yeah. to you, gave you women, and also gave yeah. you the power. Yeah, I didn't know what it was. That pissed me off. It knocked that living shit out of me. Smacked me in the face. And I couldn't run after because my leg was torn up. And then uh, it was like one of the last days of the tour. It was me and Dr. Death. We always tagged a lot on the house show. Me and Dr. Death against a nookie. The main event against nookie. And, who you know, he always had somebody, what, Fujinami or somebody as partner. But it was weird. It's like every night I'd either be in a tag with, either. When it, it depends on which time I was there. I was either tagging with Dick Murdoch against a nookie and somebody or Dr. Death and somebody, or Jim Duggan. All, uh, every time it was always in the main event with a nookie. I was like, damn, too bad this ain't happening in America over here. <laughs> Shit, good shit's happening. But the, uh, and then the nookie though, did the smack that after my leg had been hurt the whole tour. Because, I mean, they actually had to tape my leg up like uh, the football players do, you know, because George Wells was a pro football player. I don't know, something like he was, I think, wasn't he? He knew how to do the leg tape thing, though, where they, I mean, like when they hurt their knees so much football. So they had to actually tape it like a cast. It was so bad. And then I guess a nookie liked that because then they'd come over there and tell me the referees would say, like, a nookie's watching you and he really likes the way you. I mean, they knew everything I was doing. He'd say, a nookie knows you're going to the gym every day. And I was like, what the hell? <laughs> Spying on me or what? He knows everything I'm doing. He respects that you're doing this, even with your leg hurt and all that. And then, uh, I had to actually, it got so bad, like the second week, and it started healing, though, because they kept bringing me so much ice, and some, they knew all the, you know, football players, Dr. Death played football, too, and George Well, they said a good remedy at work, they said just fill the bathtub up, hot as you can stand in the water, and then stay in there for 15, 20 minutes, then ice for 15 minutes, and then I did that, like, every night, and then it started healing, actually, <laughs> even when I'm wrestling every night, so anyway, it started healing, and I started being able to do more matches after that, but the, at first it was so bad that they put me in six-man tags, like still like main event with Anuki, though. And then the last night, though, he smacked me like that, Anuki did, I guess, just to show me, <laughs> this is how much I respect you. Wham! I was like, what the hell? Jesus. I've never been hit that hard, even a real fight. <laughs> still beats drinking your own piss. For respect, yeah, yeah. I did smack Jake too, though that night. I forgot about that part. And Hockey Hockey Dot was just saying that, yeah. And then smacked him, and then I was, oh yeah, that's right, I smacked him. 
because he tried to smack me and then I smacked him and then he kissed me, all kinds of shit. I got a story about Jake. I got a horrible story about Jake, but it, it's so, I mean, you wouldn't even believe it. It's so, that shows how weird he really, I told Honky Talk Man this uh, story and when I had that thing in San Diego last month and he, he just was looking at me. <laughs> he believed it, but he was just like, how sick is this son of a bitch? And then, <laughs> okay. But I, I don't think I told this. One more about Jake, since he doesn't seem to respond to all the other crap at all, you know? <laughs> he don't even care. One dollar, Jake. Just one dollar. Please, give me one dollar. Anyway, he uh, he told me one time, he was, uh, I don't know if I told you about the time on my couch when he was wanting crack so bad, and I wouldn't take him anymore because he almost got me killed every time I took him down to the hood, you know? They'd all right, I remember you actually him. got out of the car with a gun and chased after the gun. Yeah. And the money oh, yeah. That's what it ended up being later. Yeah, that's how it ended up being the story. But I don't, I don't remember that part. But I did have a gun, but I didn't get out of the car and run after. So the uh, anyway, yeah, that was pretty crazy shit happened down there. They stole all of his money, and he was such a big pussy. He said, "No, just leave all the money. I just paid him in like two grand." I was like, "Are you kidding me? You gotta let these guys take all that." He said, like, "I don't care. Just go, go, go." fucking need never going down here again <laughs> so anyway he gets to my house again and he's like wanting it again you know crack I'm like, oh god so i actually had some uh cocaine because i thought some girl liked the you know <laughs> some girl that i had met you know she wanted ecstasy i didn't realize she didn't like every drug she just wanted ecstasy only back in the late 90s you know when everybody wanted ecstasy so i thought she'd like every drug so i found somebody sold me some cocaine you know so i just she didn't want it so i was just like fuck i want to do with this shit no it wasn't very much so i had it in there just saving it you know for some day some girl might want it. so then he goes uh i said here i'll just give you the he goes oh you do and i'm like yeah whatever bullshit <laughs> ain't my so then, well, yeah, so then he's I knew, like, oh, I knew Jerry got, Gray was getting yeah, high all yeah, these yeah. years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he said, I thought you had, I was like, man, hey, this is not the girl. Yeah, you ain't going to believe it anyway, whatever. So then he cooks it up like a scientist with a spoon and all this shit and makes it and smokes it. And then he gets, starts getting weird then in my house and sitting on the couch, you know, it was like one o'clock in the morning. So what it was is he called me because Benny Hill, you know, the, his girlfriend, Benny Hill. <laughs> right. <laughs> whatever, Valerie, she, she uh, they were in Orlando. And she uh, was telling him all the time, you got to do something with me now and give you all this money all the time. It's time for, I want something taken care of, you know? So he calls me and said, she's trying to get me again, man. Can I come over to your house? I was like, yeah, whatever, come on. So he gets over there. He's like, yeah, she keeps trying this shit. I ain't doing that, man. I'm with her. I was like, yeah, I'm sure. I bet he has. I know he has. And he's like, nah, I ain't doing that. So then anyway, he starts smoking the shit that I gave him or whatever. And he's like, then he starts getting weird. I mean, saying some weird crap. He said, you got a porno movie? I was like, oh, God, <laughs> this is kind of weird with you. I don't want to watch porno with you. So then we watched it a little bit, and he's like, eh, talking about the guys more than the girls. I'm like, what the fuck? I was like, okay, this is getting weird. Then he goes, that doesn't matter, man. I didn't tell this, did I? <laughs> I'm gonna no, fucking tell it. I don't know where you're going asshole. at all. Okay, okay. <laughs> I won't do it too too X-ray, but this is fucking weird. I just told Uncle this. He didn't even never hear this one. So he goes, he's watching this, you know, the porn on. He's like, ah, seconds. It's the same thing, man. Skin. He's really, you know, a crack whatever it does to him makes him go crazy and hyper and like energy and everything. All of a sudden, he's like, it's a skin, you know, trying to convince me it's just skin. Same thing, you know, human. stuff like, oh shit. What the hell is he doing? And he goes, yeah, man. He said, I said, what? He goes, it's the same thing. Humans, men, women, it doesn't matter. I said, oh, shit. And he goes, because what happened one time, he said, I was with this woman, you know, 
So I'm doing everything. And all of a sudden her husband comes home and puts a gun to my head and tells me to suck it. And I was like, Oh my God. I said, what'd you do? He goes, I swallowed it down. It wasn't that bad. (laughs) (laughs) He said, he swallowed it. I said, what the fuck? He goes, and he starts trying to convince me. That's when he realized it's not that bad. It's like, he said, it's the same thing, man. I swallowed it all down. I was like, Oh shit. And I started getting really nervous. And I'm like, this motherfucker is trying to convince me. I, I can't believe this shit. I never expected you know, that of him, everything else, but I never suspected that of him, you know? <laughs> and I was like, maybe that's why he was at Vince's house. And, uh, all the stories. He was telling me about Vince, all kinds of stories too. I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> what about you, motherfucker? You're the one saying all this weird shit right now. Don't worry about Vince, him and Shawn Michaels and all this shit he was telling me. What would he tell you, know, you about but, Vince and Shawn Michaels? Oh, yeah, you know, the story. He said, the, the, well, Jake was actually at his house, you know, on the booking meetings and all that, too. So who knows what he what he goes, uh, the bearskin rug and all this crap, Ultimate Warrior. Vince had a picture of him laying on that, naked on that bearskin. You ever heard about that one? No. Oh, yeah. Vince has got a bear, bear rug, bear, you know, a real bearskin rug. And then he uh, had pictures of Ultimate Warrior. I've heard that from other people, too, as well. And then Jake told Jake don't usually make up stories either because it's on, pretty on, weird. Vince McMahon okay. had pictures of. I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying. Warrior, the Ultimate Warrior, mm-hmm. nude on his bearskin rug. I've heard it. I didn't see it myself, but I've heard it from a bunch of different people. But how big would names, that even like get Guinness. out? If that was true, how would word get out? Uh, <laughs> that, that that's what I said. Yeah, it's from the top top guys that wouldn't know is the reason I, I don't believe it when it's coming from somebody like fucking you know, Bear Horowitz or somebody but well <laughs> when Jake's I mean, while Jake he's smoking cocaine I would certainly believe it yeah, yeah. And, well not just Jake though it wasn't just him though it was like I mean I've heard it from George well, well don't George say Steele, who don't, well you just said one okay I've heard different yeah, <laughs> yeah I've heard from different different people that were in the office and big names I mean that's what I'm saying it wasn't like from somebody that's never even worked there and then he said some stuff about Shawn Mark. I heard that from a lot of different people. I don't know. That Vince and then was having a relationship with Shawn Michaels? I've heard it from a lot of people. I've never seen it either, but I'm, I'm just saying. And then uh, and what Ultima Warrior even said he used to go to you know Vince's house and stay with him the weekends and stuff a lot. And uh, so it's like, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if they're just jealous or I've heard so much shit. And some of it's from like independent guys. And I'm just like, yeah, I don't really want to complain. I can't listen to this guy, but when it's somebody... It was actually at Vince's house, you know, in booking meetings with him and everything else. It's like yeah. uh, I mean, when Jake Roberts is saying it to you while he's trying to seduce you, obviously, yeah, I would believe it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because he's trying to convince me. See, even even Vince does it. It's nothing wrong with that shit. He's a billionaire. No, I don't know. I don't know, but I'm just telling you. And Vince, he was cool when I first when I first worked there. You know, with uh, whatever year it was, '87. Vince was in the dressing room and. I remember um, he liked girls at that time because Cherry uh, Martell bent over, you know, to um, do something when she was, I think she was with Honky then. What was that name she did? Oh, Peggy With the wig on. Yeah. Well, anyway, he's in the dress room just hanging with all of us, you know, Vince was at that time. And he's like, uh, she bent over because I already got in with him quick because Jake, he loved Jake for some reason. Uh, Vince did. And then Jake was like, at that time still, we had just lived together a couple of years before that, big buddies, you know. So Jake's, Talking to me and Vince is standing there telling Jake, Oh, you you really straight now. I think he just went to his first rehab or something. And Jake's kinda of halfway laughing about it. I mean, and Vince is almost kinda of laughing too. So I was just like, What the hell? Because I know he did all the shit with the guys too, drugs back then, Valentine told me. Anyway, the, um he's telling Jake that. So then he kinda of like 
it was just weird. I don't know. I got kind of right in quick, quick, quick with the inside stuff by standing there with Jake talking to Vince and So then uh, Sherry bent over. Her boobs were hanging out kind of, and then Vince looked up me and did his eyebrows like when he's looking at her tits, you know. So I was just like, well, okay, I guess he likes women too, whatever. So then, and then anyway, he was cool back then. And then I remember the funniest part was I had brought some guy with me that wasn't good worker at all. I didn't train him, but he was just like a guy that used to give me rides and stuff. Like he was trying to be a wrestler, but he came with me down there. And then I already told you that's where Humperdinck and Rick Rude see me walk in the building. And I just hurt my leg. Like I was telling you for Japan, but I was like, I wasn't want to work for a while. I wanted to rest for a while. And they go, I, I just came there to see Jake. Actually, I hadn't seen him a couple of years. And the Rude and Humperdinck said, Oh, you working tonight? Come on. They brought me over to everybody. I was like, Oh, fuck. you know, I'm not gonna hurt their feelings after they do all this work trying to get me booked. And then I was like, oh, great. So then my legs all hurting when I had to wrestle Macho Man and everybody. And then, uh, so then uh, the guy that was with me, I told you to give me rides. He was just like, a, he only had like a couple matches maybe. And then You're Savage thought he was doing, yeah, yeah. Savage thought he was doing me a favor by this. So Matt Man goes, who's this? Uh, I'm not going to say his name because he might hear this, but the guy, he goes, uh, McMahon goes, who's this uh, guy, whatever his name is. And then Savage goes, is he with you? I said, yeah, you know, I was like, don't fucking plug him, though. He goes, he's great. Yeah, this guy's good. He's in with him. Well, Jesus, no. Don't fucking say he's with me. So then I'm watching on the monitor, standing behind McMahon. He's watching this guy. After, he got to go there with uh, Anvil and Bret Hart, the Hart Foundation, this guy did. And they tried, to, he was big, too, kind of like heavy, not good, but like just no good, sloppy body. And they tried to pick him up for something. You know how Bret Hart could do anything usually with anybody. He tried, he couldn't even do the one arm backbreaker with him. He was like, the guy fell, he was too heavy, he didn't even jump. And then he, he fucked that up and screwed something else up. And the man goes, Where the hell did we get this guy at? Jesus Christ. And then I, I went and kind of hid somewhere. And Savage, Savage is the one that said, Not me. So Savage said how good he was just because he was with me. <laughs> it was funny. So anyway, that was the story. But Jake, yeah, he swallowed down all the stuff he told me, and there was nothing wrong with it. And then he started telling me, I was just like, uh, I'm getting sleepy, aren't you? And he was like, he knew, fuck, he's got to tell everybody this shit now. He didn't go for it, and now I'm going to get exposed someday. So I was just like, I'm getting sleepy. And he looked at me like, oh, shit. And he thought for sure that I was going to, for some reason, I don't know, whatever gave him the idea that I would fall for his weird shit. So that he goes, yeah, I am too. And I was just like, he looked at me in the eyes like he could tell, like, oh, fuck. So I went in my room. He was going to sleep on the couch, I thought. And he was so embarrassed. I locked my door, too, because I thought he was going to come in there and try to rape me. <laughs> anyway, he was like, yeah, I'm telling him, seriously. He was being so weird. I was like, man, this fucker is weird. And then he, uh, he, I heard the door click. He left. He was so embarrassed. I don't think I actually ever seen him again after that. That was the last time he was in my house and tried to come on to me. And then he was so embarrassed from that, that night, I think. When we go back to the famous story, though, about the don't drink the piss, remember, he yeah, kissed that was, you that night. Yeah, that was before he did this crap on the couch. Yeah, that was a couple of years before. the. This was like the last time I ever seen him, probably 2000. One. It was right before I was getting ready to have a tour of uh, Saudi Arabia, and then he was screwing it all up. Jake was. That's why I just got sick of all his crap. He got money up front again that time, and then he, I couldn't find him right when it's ready to happen. And he ruined everything. They said we're not even going to do it if you don't have that's the main one we wanted. And I couldn't find him. He just disappeared. And then, yeah, he he kissed me on the lips like a year or two before this and drank the piss and all that crap. <laughs> this is like the last time. I probably talked to him on the phone maybe after that, but I never seen him in person after that. That night he did that. 
So Jake, send me some money and I'll quit telling all your crappy stuff you did. <laughs> anyway. So for the yeah, record, as, as we wrap things up, let's, you know, we want to plug your GoFundMe, but Jake Roberts yeah. still owes you a great deal of money and he has avoided you every time you've attempted to contact him to get the money that he owes you back. And you actually need it. Oh, yeah. You're going through so many medical issues, but that's the correct story, right? Well, the worst thing was I didn't even ask you for money. The first, I just told him that I was sick and everything when the first happened. And then he must have thought like, oh, fuck, he ain't got nothing for me. I don't know. I'm going to talk to him. Like it was not a show or something where you can get deposit again or something. You know? That's the worst thing. I mean, it's like I didn't even ask for anything. He's fucking just ignoring me. Any other time, like if I call him or wrote him or anything, he thought there's a show coming up because it always was usually for him, you know, for me. And then when it didn't have anything to do with shows, it was like nothing. That's why I finally said, well, you know, by the way, what about the money? I didn't even say nothing about that. Jeez. Yeah, he just ignored it completely. Everything. Once again, we want to tell everyone tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy. If you have enjoyed Jerry Gray here on the Super Podcast, telling us these amazing stories, giving so many great laughs to people out there. Please consider contributing to tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy. Every little bit helps. If every listener donated a dollar, Jerry would have been able to meet his goal multiple times over now. It's bothersome that it hasn't happened that way. But once again, you can make your donations now. Jerry, any last words to the listeners? No, I just appreciate everything. And uh, I'm glad that everyone enjoys these stories. And they are 100% true. And you can ask some of the other big names. A lot of these stories, Honky Tonk Man knows, and a lot of other guys too. So, um, like I said, I appreciate all the help. And actually, you know, it's not just for medical things. I mean, well, you have no money coming in. I'm actually food. I even appreciate a couple of the listeners. They've even sent me groceries a few times and cards for food, you know, when Dixie stuff like that. So I appreciate everything pretty much. I mean, very much. And, like I said, just thank you so much, everyone, and I'll continue to give you these good stories, and I have many, many more. Thank God I do have a good memory. There he is, the golden boy, Jerry Gray, once again, tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy. Every dollar helps out Jerry. If you enjoy these segments on the show, consider lending a hand and helping him out right now while he is battling stage four cancer. We love you, Jerry. Keep on fighting. Kick that cancer's ass. Kurt, it is now time for Book of the Week. Book of the Week? Book of the Week. And I am so excited about this week's Book of the Week. And, of course, the next segment you hear will be all about it. It is Death of the Territories, Expansion, Betrayal, and the War that Changed Professional Wrestling Forever by Tim Hornbaker. Have you heard about this book, Kurt? I have heard about it, and actually, uh, once I finish uh, Rock Rim's book on Northern California, that's the next book I pl- wrestling-related book I plan to read. This book is tremendous. Tim does such an amazing job of researching an era that is pretty hard to come up with information on. Of course, after a while, it's all Vince McMahon, and that's really a closed door. It's very hard to get information out of there, but Tim does a fantastic job. This information I have never seen or known for sure before. I've talked to Jim Cornette about this book, and we just couldn't believe some of the stuff that we read in here. It is fantastic. If you've ever wondered exactly how the cookie crumbled in the 80s, how did all the territories coexist before they couldn't coexist? What exactly happened? How fast did it happen? 
All of the answers are right here in this book. This book gets the highest possible recommendation from the Super Podcast. I thought this book was tremendous. Death of the Territories, Expansion, Betrayal, and the War that Changed Pro Wrestling Forever by Tim Hornbaker. I suggest everyone get this now. I believe it's available for pre-order, although some people have mentioned that they've already received copies. But you could definitely pre-order it now at Amazon. If you're going to go there, use tinyurl.com slash superpod. Amazon. By using that link, you support this show. You don't pay any more money than you would normally pay with Amazon. You do nothing different than you would normally do, except you input this link, tinyurl.com slash superpod, Amazon into the bar instead of amazon.com. And by doing so, we get a little bit of love and support for every purchase that is made once you add an item to your cart after using that link. It's a great way to support this show. We don't hit you over the top with really stupid fucking ads. We don't insult you. We give you the best quality wrestling content that anyone produces to this day. If you appreciate that or you enjoy that and you don't want to do anything different, you don't want to spend money, you don't want to buy a t-shirt, use tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon to support this show. And of course, don't forget to give that link to your girlfriend, your mistress, your wife, your boyfriend, your husband, whatever it may be. I don't give a fuck. Give them the link, tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. Lots of other shows have links. Lots of other shows are so desperate for your support. They are whores. We're not whores. We've got integrity over here. So when it comes down to it, you have to decide, which show should I support? Should it be the little motherfuckers that suck? Should it be the big motherfuckers that suck? Or should it be the mothership, the best wrestling podcast on the planet? I think the answer answer will be quite obvious when it comes down to it. When it comes down to them or us, fuck those guys. Fuck them, because they I'll sick my mother's posse on them. <laughs> support the Super Podcast. Support your Super Podcast. And with that, Kurt, let's go to this conversation I well, had. Brian? Yeah. Brian, you know, I, I, you know I, I know you only do one book review each time, but I, I just came across a book review that's it's over 10 years old, but it's still quite tropical. Do you ever read a book called Good Morning, Holy Spirit? By Benny Hine, you know, the, the Benny Hinn or Benny Hine, the guy who goes around smacking people on the head? I know who he is. I have not read any of his works. I must. Oh, well, well, the ghost of Dr. Jerry Graham read one of his works many years ago. And through the, through the great science of channeling, <clears throat> he talked about the wonderful person, uh, Tom Hankins, who he knows as his son, Charlie, or Steele, <clears throat> got him the book, Good Morning, Holy Spirit. In 1984, that Christmas when we all joined him for some uh, Canadian club and lots of sativa and cigars, well, he read the book, and this was his take on it. So my son Steele and his wife Sue, with the best of intentions, bring this book to me one Christmas. After they endured a long journey and a night filled with holiday sativa and orange sunshine tea, I'm telling you, Filled with the Holy Spirit, they caroused the streets of Northridge and Reseda, allowing their sick senses to guide them into Hollywood to find this gift into an unusual bookstore. It's called Good Morning Holy Spirit by the evangelist Benny Hine or Hin or whatever you want to call that <laughs> cocksucker. So it winds up Steele and his wife Sue were so one-dimensionally enamored in their religious experience that when they found this book in Hollywood at 1 a.m. in the morning, 
they thought they thought it said "Good Morning Starshine" by Benny Hill in the cast of Hair. They envisioned a paradise in which the spirit of Britain's late comic genius chased cute go-go girls through meadows and grassy knolls to the tune of yakety sacks, yakety sacks. I'm telling you. Now, beautiful as that vision is, and I believe that with hard work we can attain it. It was not covered in these pages, no. Seal, steel, and seal, along with my wolf back of physico-nuclear, Herr Mr. Barrington, Reverend Anton T. Ripper, and Vandal Drummond, they spilled through my hotel room and fell into my cell all upon a Christmas Eve. We ate and drank ourselves merry, and we entertained ourselves with a box that once contained a He-Man and the Master's Universe toy castle. It was beautiful. We were drinking, we were smoking, we were... Okay, chapter one, can I really know you? Now, this displays the lunatic prophecies this preacher possesses. He speaks of the day the Holy Spirit entered his room, and that he was as real as the book you are holding in your hand is to you, and... Oh, kid, where... Where do you get these lines? I, ah, I'm telling you. His awakening is misguided, as proven two paragraphs later. It seemed that my room had been lifted into the hemisphere of heaven. In other words, he loses his mind by the mistaken translation of his experience. It did not seem that his room had lifted. His room did levitate through the guidance of Lord Krishna and Principe Elefante. He astral projected through time. Twilight sobbed upon the tree, a woe, and even entered the poppy held by Prince Gautama Buddha. Benny Hinn almost achieved Enlightenment, enlightenment, ready to hypnotize and pacify entire troops of ill-willed Castulian bastards whose anger spilled over when the rainbow was not enough. But Hin played the fool, and he did not recognize the real spirit before him, the spirit that graced great gamma with wrestling brilliance and Hindu squats, the spirit that threw, threw, threw fresh frog fruit in the arid regions of the Allen Hotel. No, no. He misinterpreted the Hindu bliss before him, and instead he was plastered with visions of Saloni's crazy uncle running nude down the streets of San Fernando, surrounded by blaring sirens of police and firemen that chased him down. The horror. Ah, the horror. But fortunately, this book turned into a winged creature and flew out my hotel room window with the help of my hand and still lit up a comforting comforting, wonderful Christmas tree. Then did the right hemisphere of the brain short-circuit the left hemisphere. The left hemisphere short-circuited the right hemisphere, and bing! We were there. Enlightenment achieved. I'm telling you the truth. Let's now go to this conversation with the author of Death of the Territories, wrestling historian, Tim Hornbaker. He's beautiful. We are back on the Super Podcast with the man who just wrote the new book, Death of the Territories, Expansion, Betrayal, and the War that Changed Professional Wrestling Forever. And that is Tim Hornbaker. He has written several books about wrestling, but this one has really caught my eye, and I fell in love with it. I think it's great. Tim, thank you for being here today. 
Brian, thank you for having me. It's a true honor. I really appreciate it. Well, before we talk about this book and, and this period of time in general, which, you know, you, you call it the death of the territories, it's really the 80s. It's really just the entire decade of the 80s as everything dissolves and changes and evolves and whatever you want to call it. But you've done some other wrestling books in the past. Most of them have been historical. Most of them have been really heavy on research and have uncovered a lot of facts that a lot of historians and a lot of other fans didn't know before. What is your background? What is your background with wrestling and what is your background with actually doing research? I started as a fan of, of professional wrestling. I mean, that's pretty much the genesis of everything. I really fell in love with wrestling and wanted to learn more about its background, its heritage, the legacy of wrestling. And a little bit at a time, I started acquiring information here and there. And um, I started, you know, looking at uh, old newspapers and magazines and that became more of a drive. I wanted to share with other people the information that I was finding. And that all culminated into my uh, 2007 book, National Wrestling Alliance, The Untold Story of the Monopoly That Strangled Pro Wrestling. And in that book, I was kind of able to give readers a, a, a wide perspective of the birth of the NWA, um, the major players, and um, the background of that organization. And also one of the highlights of that book was talking about the Department of Justice uh, investigation into the NWA. So that was a uh, a book that I was really proud of and uh, wanted to put it out there and share with uh, people uh, this amazing history of, of wrestling. I've written several other books. Um, you, uh, I can go into those, too, if you'd like. Well, you know, the interesting thing I, I want to bring up is you, you bring up your first book, which was all about the NWA. Of course, your second book was about the rise of capital wrestling. Of course, the McMahons, the yes. WWF, the WWF. This book is about the death of the territories, in many ways, the death of the NWA. Do you see this in any yes. way as like a trilogy? How do you see this three-volume set? I, I kind of do, yeah. I feel like one book leads to the next and then ultimately leads into this book. Uh, you're absolutely right. My NWA book kind of laid out the, the, the territories and the major players, um, and, you know, what their backgrounds were and what kind of success they were having. Capital Revolution was kind of right in the middle and talked about the rise of Vince McMahon Sr. in the Northeastern Territory and how that was shaping the business with the original WWWF. And this book looks at the evolution of wrestling in the 70s and 80s up until it became a two-horse race between uh, McMahon Jr.'s WWF and uh, Jim Crockett and then WCW. So, yeah. I do kind of see it as a, a trilogy, and uh, that's a great uh, explanation for these books. You do get to trace the history of the NWA from the very beginning till the end. I mean, of course, it still exists in a form today, and it has for many, many years now. But for all purposes that we would really look at, it died really at the end of the 80s. I mean, by that point, it was never going to be what yes. it was ever again. A collection of promoters collectively booking a champion, voting on a champion, booking him yeah. out. I mean, it was never going to be that ever again. And in many ways, it's depressing, but in other ways, you see the rise of the McMahon family. I mean, that's the other thing. It's kind of while you're tracing the history of the NWA and the trajectory of it, you're also doing the same thing with the McMahons as a separate entity. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the McMahons' progress from the Northeast, actually, you can even go before that when Vince McMahon Sr. was in Washington, D.C., and how he initially took on television uh, in the 1950s and how that kind of helped his promotion. And then he got himself into New York and Madison Square Garden and then uh, the formation of the WWWF. 
And then if you, you trace it through what happened in the 1980s and then even continue to this day where, you know, McMahon and the WWE Network, I mean, there really is a, a massive progression of the success that the McMahon family has had. And nobody in professional wrestling history could even compare. Well, before we get going too far into wrestling, I do want you to talk a little bit about some of your other books uh, real quick, because we have talked about baseball here on this show. We are baseball fans. What are some of the baseball books you've done? Because these are uh, other books I'm interested in. Yes, uh, absolutely. I've done three books on uh, baseball history, uh, the dead ball era. It, the first one was Turning the Black Sox White, The Misunderstood Legacy of Charles A. Comiskey. It's essentially a biography of Charles Comiskey, who uh, was the owner of the White Sox and always got a bad rap for underpaying his players during the, you know, the Black Sox scandal. Uh, my second book was War on the Base Paths, a definitive biography of Ty Cobb. Again, Ty Cobb was a uh, player who uh, is often criticized, but at the same time called one of the greatest players to ever live. So that was a challenging book to kind of sort out the truth from fiction. In uh, my last baseball book was Fall from Grace, The Truth and Tragedy of uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson. Uh, Joe Jackson was um, caught up in the Black Sox scandal. He was a guaranteed Hall of Famer had he not got caught up in the Black Sox scandal uh, you know, he would be a legend today, but uh, that book kind of examines where he went wrong and how ultimately his life ended kind of in sadness and tragedy. There had been a push, you know, at least a few years ago, I don't know if it's still going on, to get Shoeless Joe into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think even to this day, there are supporters that think that, you know, he was completely faultless. They claim that his batting average during the, the 1919 World Series proved that he wasn't uh, involved. He hit the series' only home run. Um, he, he did play well, but that didn't discount the fact that he still took $5,000 uh, of gambling money, and he did know about it. And the book should tells, and I, I'll explain to you now, that he could have at any point told somebody about what was happening. He could have done any number of things, but he took the money, he didn't tell anybody about it, and he has paid the price in history. What's easier for you, or what's harder for you, I should phrase it as, doing a biography of an individual or doing an overall history of a time or a place or a company? That is a great question, and I actually have thought about that recently. Um, uh, I Probably doing a more complex history of multiple things at one time would be harder than a biography. Um, I think biographies are probably more fun for me because you really get into the life of a person you know about pretty much any, anything you could find about that particular individual comes into the play when you're researching a biography. But a book like Death of the Territories, I mean, it was a very complex history with so many different moving parts. Making sure that you keep it organized and keep the facts straight uh, becomes a challenge. And um, I, I love history. I love researching. I love, you know, taking on these big projects. Uh, and I look forward to doing more in the future. That's really what it is, the complexity, all the moving parts. It's hard to really encapsulate that and, and put it into focus. What era did you find harder to do research for? The early era of the NWA, the 40s and the 50s, or the 70s and 80s? You'd be surprised. It's definitely the 70s and 80s. I mean, I think, yeah, just the fact, and, and I grew up watching wrestling in the, in the 80s, and uh, you know, I absorbed all the information I could growing up, and but... Uh, just to tell you, I, I found more primary source documentation for older stuff than I do for newer stuff. And I don't know if it's the people that were involved or just they threw it away or there's just not documentation. I think also the fact that the, um, the U.S. government 
filed suit against the NWA and confiscated documents, and those documents are in the National Archive. Me obtaining those, that information allowed me to get a better sense of what was happening with the NWA at that particular time, wherein now there's really not that kind of archive of information that's out there. So uh, with this book, it was definitely a challenge. And again, with all the moving parts to keep it all you know, organized and to tell a, a uh, true and honest story uh, in a clear and concise manner was definitely just a, an overall challenge for me. Yeah, I mean, I was impressed by some of the detail you had that I had not seen in previous work uh, that had been done on the era. Some of the facts clearly, you know, would come from an NWA meeting. And I, I guess yes. that's kind of why some of the information dries up after a certain point, because at a certain point, the minutes of the NWA meeting don't matter anymore. You know, it's just yeah, a formality. Absolutely. And you put together a lot of things. You know, the one thing I've talked about, I think I did it on Jim Cornette's show. I may have done it here on 605, is the detail in exactly how the Sheik left the NWA. I had never knew the whole story before, but you actually had the information. You knew exactly what happened. Yeah, I mean, uh, the Sheik, uh, I think he was running on empty, and I think fans in the, uh, the Detroit territory were not uh, were not buying what he was selling. But on top of that, you had uh, you know different issues as far as Detroit itself was, was uh, per se. You know, there was a lot of issues socially and economically yeah, he eventually lost his TV. Um, he got in trouble with the NWA. I mean, there was a lot of different factors that the Sheik uh, ran into at the end of there and essentially, you know, rang the bell for Detroit. And a lot of Detroit fans, you know, who loved the old wrestling at Cobo Hall and, and whatnot, I mean, they were definitely disappointed by that. Talking about this book, talking about Death of the Territories, one of the interesting things, and I think this is an overall arching story that we could talk about here, but one of the interesting things is the idea, and, and it's not even an idea, I think it's a fact that you very neatly point out. I mean, that's one of the things your book does, is it balances the actual detail and the research with moving the story along and explaining everything that's happening, is that the idea that Vince McMahon killed wrestling and killed the territories really is not strong as an argument if you look at the facts. Because while you may not like the direction he took it, someone was going national, and many people were already making the play to go national before Vince made his big move, correct? Yeah, definitely. That's absolutely 100% true. Uh, Vince McMahon had the, uh, the firepower first, I would say, to go national and to be successful than... Uh, you know, than his competitors at that point. And you, you make a great point that people wanted to blame McMahon for killing the territories. I think he's always had a bad rap, got a bad rap for that. Uh, the territories were headed for for the end of the road as it was. Uh, the, the territories, uh, the, the promoters that ran the individual territories, they weren't young men. Let me just put it that way. These promoters were in their 50s, 60s, 70s years, years old. They were very ingrained in their mindset and in their regions and didn't have a, a kind of a wider perspective to, to, make, to change with the times. And here you had a, a young, enterprising man like Vince McMahon Jr. who stepped into the, the, the fold here and kind of just did what he wanted to do. He, he wasn't uh, held down by the old constraints of the old handshake agreements and um, the territories didn't have a chance. And like you said, if he hadn't done it, somebody else would. Uh, ha would they have been successful? I don't know. No, it's hard to say. It certainly would be a different direction for wrestling. But one of the things your book really points out well is the swiftness of it. 
It was quick. Vince, from the moment he takes over the company in the summer of 82, he is moving quick. He right away swallows up LaBelle. And, and I couldn't believe some of the information you had from the LaBelle lawsuit. That was fascinating yeah. stuff. Did he really pay LaBelle, or at least promise to pay LaBelle, more money than he was going to pay the partners in Capital Wrestling? I love that. Uh, finding that court case, and even there wasn't a full deposition within the court case files, but what was there was utterly fascinating. And that was one of the big finds that I, I had for this book was the court documents uh, for the LaBelle McMahon case. And yes, it appeared that he was going to pay more for the Southern California Territory than he did his father and the shareholders of Capital Wrestling. I don't know how much he paid. That is not clear from the documentation. But what is clear was the claim from LaBelle that all of the payments weren't made. At some point, it stopped. And it was also revealed that uh, McMahon and LaBelle only had a handshake agreement, which, of course, didn't hold up in court. It didn't. And LaBelle, that was it. That was the end of Michael Bell with professional wrestling. He moved on and Vince didn't look back. But there's a lot of stories similar to that. You know, when Vince starts making his moves, he either tries to buy you or he'll just find a way to gut you (laughs) and take everything. No, that's absolutely true. Yes, definitely. And all these partnerships, you know, even Larry Matisic, Larry Matisic was going to be until he doesn't need you. You know, then he pushes you aside as soon as he doesn't need you. I think, yeah. Yeah, he he realizes that, uh, you know, he can go, you know, achieve the same success without you, and then he makes his move. I bring up Larry Matisic. What do you think of St. Louis as kind of a perfect encapsulation of everything happening in 82 and 83? The changes that are happening in terms of the NWA being this organization with mostly older promoters, you know, there are a few younger guys, Ron Fuller, Jim Crockett Jr. wasn't relatively old. But it was Bob Geigel. <laughs> you still had that element yeah. in there. But when you yeah. look at St. Louis from after Sam Mushnick's retirement, it's almost like that really shows you what's going to happen to the NWA, just that one town. Yeah, that's a beautiful explanation for it. I mean, I, you really look at that and see how it went from being the shining star of the NWA to, uh, you know, a, 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 essentially uh, just a WWF town that, you know, McMahon controls. Uh, that process was uh, unbelievable. And I'm sure a lot of people that lived in St. Louis went through some, they probably had a lot of nightmares in that, in that period where, you know, you're, you're hanging on with Bob Geigel and you're trying to keep the NWA name alive. And uh, essentially Geigel lost St. Louis and he'd eventually lose Kansas city. So, you know, you have that transition period where it goes from, you know, the heart of the NWA, this, uh, this certain style of wrestling, this, this certain promotion that has integrity and, and these, uh, these wrestlers who could really wrestle. And then you, uh, and not to put down the WWF, but what people perceived of McMahon's wrestling at the time in comparison to the WWF or, or to the uh, NWA, you had, uh, you know, uh, colorful characters. You had, you know, these circus performers as people would, would claim, you know, like, uh, you know, these gimmicks, you know, and nobody wanted to really, they didn't want to embrace that, I can just say. And, you know, in St. Louis really was hit hard. And I'm sure for those old time fans, it was a, a rude awakening. And there was no strong leader. I, and, I, and I don't mean that to insult anyone like Bill Watts or Jerry Jarrett, who were very successful. And, you know, certainly Bill Watts was a strong leader from Mid-South. But in terms of getting everyone together, Pro Wrestling USA failed pretty quickly and, you know, had no yeah, chance definitely. of succeeding. None of these guys could get along. And eventually it wasn't even just the WWF. You look at a town like Memphis. Jim Crockett goes in there, the UWF goes in there, Vince McMahon goes in there. They all start competing for the same towns. Look at Alabama. Everyone's going into there. Now you have three companies and a homegrown territory all 
going into one town. It just it was a funnel of death, <laughs> you know, in a lot of yeah, ways. Yeah, exactly. And how does the territory survive at that point? I mean, you have so much going on. Where do the fans' loyalty go? I mean, you have these this influx of new fans that are embracing the WWF and its style. These families that are appreciating the WWF, and then you have the old school fans that are looking at this and, and just boggled, you know, just completely out of their minds that wrestling is is being changed before their eyes and they could do nothing about it. So, I mean, uh, wrestling really was going through a, 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 an amazing transformation at the time. The image on the cover of your book is Vince McMahon, that famous moment where he walked onto the set on World Championship Wrestling and welcomed everyone to the World Wrestling Federation. Definitely. One yeah. of the most famous moments in, in wrestling history. That is the summer of 84. If you look at from the summer of 82 until the summer of 1984, did anyone play his hand worse than Ole Anderson? It would be hard to say. Yeah, Ole Anderson, I mean, he made a, a lot of big mistakes. I mean, if you look at the fact that he himself was trying to uh, go national and, and was was making moves out west and uh, overextending his promotion, I mean, you, here you had someone who had WTBS and you had so many good things, had these star wrestlers working for him, had a lot of really uh, positive momentum. And, uh, you know, like you said, uh, his ongoing fight with Jim Barnett and just all of the underpinning of uh, dissension in the in the organization. So yeah, by 1984, just to see the uh, the company ripped out from underneath them was was stunning, but yet not surprising when you look back and, and see all the turmoil that was going on. For this period of time, like we said earlier, it's a little tougher to come up with information. What did you use? What were your sources, or not sources, but what were your methods of finding information for this period of time? That's a great question. Uh, I relied on many different sources from uh, old interviews, magazines, newsletters, old newspaper articles, uh, court cases, like we mentioned. Um, I kind of just pulled in every piece of information that I could. And of course, I, I acquired an amazing amount of information. And I think one of my challenges at that point was keeping it organized, trying to find you know fact from fiction, and then kind of putting it into a comfortable narrative where I think you know, readers would appreciate the text. I didn't want to overload readers with too much, but I wanted to give, uh, you know, I wanted to provide a heavier text for people to to appreciate what really was happening at the time. So it was a burden on me to to really keep it clear, keep it, uh, you know, keep to first of all organize all this information and then put it onto paper and then allow uh, readers to really appreciate the just the immense, uh, the magnitude of what was happening in wrestling in, in the 1980s. It's amazing that the book starts with so many different characters, so many different places, and everything's just swallowed up <laughs> by the end. Yeah, yeah. Everything, you're right. Yeah, you're right. everything is gone yeah. by the end. Um, I, mentioned yep. the, I mentioned the swiftness of Vince McMahon in, in all the moves he made from the moment he took over, and especially once things were officially declared, he just went full-blown, I don't have money, I don't care. You know, I'm going to bet on everything, I'm going to go for it. Yeah, absolutely. I thought from reading your book that the war was over before I realized it. You know, when I, when I look back sometimes, I think, the oh, WrestleMania, the war was over. The war was over before WrestleMania. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, if you really look at it and see how far McMahon was in front of everybody, and uh, one of the things that really astonished me in doing research for this book was how many different revenue streams McMahon had yes. in comparison to his opposition. and. Uh, that made it. That really gave him the padding to take more chances and to 
uh, do different things and to even buy out his competition in certain situations where, you know, you had uh, Vern Gagne who, you know, he started some merchandising with Remco and you had other, uh, other promoters that were trying to add these revenue streams. McMahon was light years ahead of them and he had the money, he had the resources, and he also had the corporate entity really behind him. Yeah. Titan Sports was really an organized business at, at that stage of the game. Uh, nobody could compare, and uh, it really just goes to show you that he was much more prepared to take his business national in, comp- you know, in comparison to you know, Gagne and the rest. And Jim Crockett Jr., when he was the last man standing, was really overwhelmed. I mean, it just, yeah, it was yeah. over like, like that, you know, you snap your fingers and he turned around and it's like, what happened? Yeah, no, he, um, you know, and again, he kept, you know, with what, with what he had, you know, his, he had great talent. He had, you know, a great booking system, you know, and he expanded, he had the syndication network. Uh, Crockett did many things right, but uh, even so McMahon was just so far in front that even though it was, a two horse race by the end, uh, you know, still it's hard to say that McMahon was in any jeopardy other than, you know, when he had all his eggs in one basket uh, in the first WrestleMania, that kind of, I think believe that was kind of a scarier time for him as far as money went. But once he slipped past WrestleMania and that was a success, I think the ball was rolling enough to where, you know, he had the, the money and he had, you know, the wrestlers in the proper position and he was just, uh, there was no stopping him. No, and it was just a perfect storm also of timing because Dr. D slapped John Stossel, I want to say, in December, but it didn't air until, I think, February. So yeah, you're once right. that airs, even though it's negative, <laughs> in almost every way, they talk about wrestling being fake, a guy blades, and then the reporter gets beat yeah. up <laughs> by the wrestler. Uh, even yeah, though it's really absolutely. negative, it gets wrestling more out there. Cindy Lauper's involved. It's more out there. Hulk Hogan chokes out Richard Belzer. Right before WrestleMania. (laughs) Again, somehow that ended up helping. Any publicity is good publicity really worked at that time. And then Saturday Night Live the day before WrestleMania. Yeah, it's hard to say. You know, you had so many things happen. Uh, The WWF was constantly in the news. So I think for, you know, getting, uh, you know, brand, getting his brand out there, good or bad, people were realizing, you know, the WWF was something to kind of keep an eye on. And for, for wrestling fans, and I think that would, we're real, willing to take a chance on it. I think, you know, hearing all that and hearing the just the amazing hype headed toward WrestleMania, you know, it was hard to not kind of take an interest and see, hey, what is this all about? You know, and let's, you know, let me take a chance. And, you know, and, and like I said, wrestling, you know, it's hard to, to say that McMahon, McMahon was going to fail at that point. I mean, he, the ball was rolling for him and he was doing really well. In in uh, in spite of all of this negativity, and he was in Connecticut. He was just right there across from New York City, and he was also able to form relationships. And one of the most important ones was with Dick Ebersol, who may be one of the most unheralded people in terms of the success of the World Wrestling Federation, because he put Hulk Hogan and Mr. T on Saturday Night Live. He put Saturday Night's main event on the air, and then he also really taught them how to turn their production into a top-notch production. And he's the one who led everything that turned the look of the programming around. And that also, you know, the, the look of the programming in comparison to the territories in those days, I mean, it was night and day. So, yeah, I mean, uh, getting the opportunity to be on NBC and Saturday Night Live and exposing, you know, these bigger-than-life characters and Hulk Hogan to the world and, and with Saturday Night's uh, main event, I mean, it was just, I mean, so many things were going right for McMahon. And, but at the same time, he was willing to make the moves necessary to, uh, to increase and improve his own business. In, in, 
And like you said, the production values, he was always working on them. And, and when you watch wrestling on, on NBC or even Saturday um, or um, uh, one of the weekend shows, you, you know, you, you really got a sense that this was a first class kind of production versus the grainier territorial shows and even the AWA. I mean, all of these promotions kind of struggled with their presentation. Uh, McMahon knew what he was doing, and, and it was uh, almost a work of art with, with what he had. We talked about how what happened was really inevitable in a lot of ways in terms of someone going national. It ended up being Vince, and really when you look at it, Vince had the best organization, the best staffing, and the best idea of how to really make something a national league where people would look at it and accept it as the only thing that matters, and that was the World Wrestling Federation. But would anyone have been able to do anything to change things, to really change the trajectory, at least on the national stage? And specifically, the one everyone always talks about is Bill Watts where for a relatively brief period of time, Mid-South Wrestling airs on TBS because Ted Turner is fed up with Vince McMahon, and he gives his old friend Bill Watts, who he knows from when he booked Georgia Championship Wrestling, a TV show on TBS, which quickly becomes the highest-rated show on cable television. They allegedly have a deal, I say allegedly just because we don't know, but Bill Watts has always said, and I haven't heard anyone doubt him, that they had a deal in place where him and Ted would be partners, you know the rest, all the details are in your book, do you think that would have changed things? How do you think a Bill Watts, Ted Turner relationship at that point in time in the spring of 1985 with not just wrestling changing, but cable television changing? How do you think that relationship would have worked and would they have been successful going up against Vince McMahon? That is a great question. And I believe that if, in a, if, if the cards fell perfectly, I feel that if they had the money behind them, I think money was a, a major downfall for Watts uh, he um, had this massive syndication network, and he didn't really have the the talent, the wrestlers, the the amount of wrestlers to be able to fulfill all of the dates and cities that he had TV in. So he needed to have more wrestlers. I think if um, Ted Turner is more or less a money man behind Bill Watts and the UWF, I feel like they do have an opportunity to do some things. But again, they're still so far behind what McMahon was already doing at the time. To make it really competitive, a lot of things had to really fall into place. Uh, but I wouldn't put it past it. If, again, if, if certain things happened, if Watts began to pull talent back in from other areas, if he even got support from other promoters that were excited that he had a national uh, outfit. And I think that was one of the downfalls for the NWA was, you know, once they lost WTBS, you know, they no longer had a massive national network for NWA performers. So if you had uh, Watts with that outlet and you had some money behind them and Watts' great system of booking and, and you, know, you know, he had a lot of positive, positive things going for him, uh, I think definitely that some moves, some, they would have had some success. But in terms of being a, a, a major direct competitor to McMahon, it's, it's hard to say. And the interesting thing is, obviously, if Ted Turner is your partner, Vince McMahon's not going to be able to play games with you on pay-per-view like he did in the early days of Jim Crockett on pay-per-view. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, and that changes the ball game. I think a lot of the muscle that McMahon had or and, and he wielded uh, was relentless against his competition, specifically uh, Crockett. Um, he kind of you know, he, he wielded so much power in the pay-per-view world with, you know, the success of his shows and just making the, the deals that he made. You know, if you, you flip a coin and you do have Watts and Turner and this big muscle, this entertainment con conglomerate behind you, uh, I think uh, a lot of things change. 
when you look at the downfall of a UWF or a Jim Crockett promotions, how much of it do you put on going too far with your syndication package? Uh, I think it's everything. I think uh, at that point, I mean, if you look at what Vern Gagne did with, uh, with his TV, he essentially did nothing in comparison to, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, if he, uh, he wasn't out there fighting for TV stations, I mean, he had his, 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 his circuit and his network, but but you you look at what Watts and what Crockett were doing. They were following the WWF and McMahon's playbook, and and in a way, it wasn't a bad thing that they were doing. They were they were looking to expand nationally. They were looking to take on new opportunities. But at that same time, if you're if you're going national and you have all these new stations across the country, Albuquerque, Denver, you know, Northern California, you really need to have a plan to go there and. Uh, that means you need to have the talent to work in those regions. And then at the same time, you need to make sure that your home regions are, are being, uh, you know, maintained as well. You have wrestlers for TV. So uh, with that, you have, you know, traveling expenses, you have, you know, these great huge expenditures. And if you have a 200 plus station in your network, you need to make sure that you're making money from advertising, from live shows. And I think, you know, Watts or Crockett, you know, they were all kind of in the same boat with this where they had, you know, too much going for them, but not enough coming back. And I think that hurt both of them. It obviously hurt Watts uh, hardest first, but Crockett was going down that same road. You know, nobody can duplicate what McMahon was doing, and uh, he was headed for disaster. Vince had WOR already, which was a superstation. He gets TBS, which is another superstation. And then he gets on USA, buying out whatever debt Joe Blanchard has. And all of a sudden, Vince McMahon is the only wrestling on cable television. And it's during this time that ESPN starts looking at wrestling. And they make the deal with Vern Gagne. And your book points out, I found this so funny. I never just saw it laid out just so neatly like this, is that as soon as he went on ESPN, nothing ever went up ever again. He got the national television spot, and then everything just continued to slide down. There were never any improvements due to having that national spot. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And uh, that's, it's, it's just utterly amazing that it, it bumped his promotion, not at all. There was no bump. There was no growth. There was no plan to use that cable TV outlet to better his organization. And that just goes to kind of show you what, how deeply McMahon and the wrestling war was hurting his organization. I will give Gagne a lot of credit. I mean, throughout his career, even going back to his days as a wrestler, uh, he was, you know, very successful. He had a good head on his shoulders. He was a smart man. Um, he made a lot of money in the, in the wrestling business. And I think um, facing the challenges of, you know, the WWF and the losses that he had sustained, Hulk Hogan, and, and just up and down the line, his roster was just beaten relentlessly by, you know, raids from the WWF. Um, you know, by the time he had gotten ESPN, uh, I feel like, you know, with this great opportunity, there was just nowhere to go with, it. you know, he didn't have any new angles. He didn't have any new superstars. There was no meat on the bone. And, um, unfortunately for fans of the AWA, I mean, it was just, uh, you know, it was just a crash course. And, uh, he, you know, again, it was just, uh, just a downward slide for him. If you look at 83, there are so many different promotions on fire. Memphis is on fire. World class obviously just blows up to the point where Dallas wrestling had never been before. And they're in the best position, by the way, in terms of scale. 
Like they have like eight wrestlers on the roster and all of a sudden it takes off and explodes. Yeah. The AWA yep. has their best year in terms of business. Bill Watts has a down year, but 84 ends up being his best year in the history of the business. But when you look at Fritz and you look at Vern, those are two of the real interesting characters at that point in 83. Vince tries to make a deal with both of them. Vince wants to buy both of them. He buys neither of them. And yep. world-class obviously implodes within when the Von Erichs start having their issues. And the AWA is just such an interesting figure. A lot of promotions your book shows went down faster than I thought looking back and just trying to remember. They went down pretty fast. Vern actually held up a little bit longer than most into early 86. And then it just nosedived. Yeah, and I and I give that to Byrne just being a you know a, a steadfast kind of a a man who wasn't willing to to give in or to throw in the towel. I mean, he was gonna do you know he was gonna hang there regardless of what McMahon or the WF was doing. And, and in articles and in interviews, he kept saying how you know McMahon was never gonna put him out of business and how you know the AWA was gonna continue its success. I mean, he literally believed that the ADB was going to outlive the WWF. And uh, yeah, the, the downward slide for the AWA, just the loss of territory, and, you know, the, the cities on his circuit, the one city after the next. I mean, he lost yeah. Denver, uh, Chicago, uh, San Francisco. I mean, the list goes on and on. And, you know, losing those cities uh, really hurt, obviously, Ghani's bottom line. He didn't have the money coming in and you know, losing talent and losing the cities, you know, by the end, uh, we're talking, you know, 87, you know, he didn't have much of a territory left. Vince McMahon and Vince McMahon defenders have always claimed that Vince didn't intentionally do anything to hurt any of the other territories. He just wanted to compete one-on-one -on -one in their town, fair and square. When you do research on this, when you see the AWA, and it wasn't just city after city, it was talent after talent, and not just wrestlers. I'm talking backstage talent. It was everyone. When you see that, when you see other things, what do you think? Do you think Vince McMahon was just looking for a fair fight, or did Vince McMahon really try to squeeze these guys? I think he definitely tried to squeeze them. I think that he knew exactly what he was doing, and I think he, you know, he, you know, he looked at who was, you know, who were the major players in front of the camera and behind the camera and, and made these big money offerings and lured these big name guys in the knowledge that he knew that pulling one of the, the backstage guys or, uh, you know, an agent or somebody, or even a big name wrestler, how it was going to hurt his competitors. And um, I, I, you know, and it wasn't, you know, looking at McMahon, he's an interesting uh, person in history. You know, again, people that dislike him wanted to say he was just this horrendously bad guy and, he killed the business and he did all these destructive things. But at the same time, the man was brilliant in what he was doing. And, you know, not everything, you know, again, it just depends on what side of the fence you're on. If you want to look back and say, you know, that was horrible what he was doing. But at the same time, he was a businessman. He was looking at, you know, how to improve his organization, was looking at how to get into the Twin Cities and to, you know, take over the, the major venues, you know, from, from Gagne and, and, and do these different things. So he was looking at, you know, how to fight this fight against, you know, these old promoters too, you know, I mentioned in the book, they weren't, uh, you know, they weren't just, the, you know, nice, innocent people, you know, they had fought the fights of professional wrestling for decades. Ganya had been in multiple wrestling wars where he was the, the big shot up That's against right. an independent operator. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, this was kind of like the roles were reversed now and you had McMahon as outsider, this young guy the spirited young guy who 
you know, was now taking the fight to Gagne. And I, I think in a lot of ways, Gagne just didn't know how to handle it. And he did the best he could. And he stayed, he kept the ADB going as long as he could. And eventually, you know, there was just no more, you know, road to run. And also look at Vern. I mean, Vern, he owned the AWA. He owned a piece of St. Louis. He owned a piece of Chicago. He was really all over the place. He was going after the West Coast. And he had that history, too. I mean, Vern tried to invade Los Angeles when that was an active promotion. He tried to take that over. That's the thing. I certainly feel bad for the way Vince ganged up on the AWA and really just, it seemed to be an attempt to humiliate the Ganya family over and over and over (laughs) again. Uh, There's no other way. way. Yeah, Yeah. to me, there's no other way you could see it. But you have to admit, Vern tried to do very similar things. And quite frankly, I think of all the other candidates, even with Ole doing crazy things with Georgia Championship Wrestling, attempting to expand, but not really doing the right things. I think Vern was probably, next to Vince McMahon, the one with the best shot of doing it because he was always trying to do it. That makes sense, and, and I agree with you. I think Vern was in a, uh, a very unique position with the experience that he had. You know, he was college-educated. He had served in the Marines during World War II. Uh, he was a hard-nosed guy. I mean, he wasn't somebody that could just be pushed around, so... When he took over the, the Minneapolis promotion in the late 50s, I mean, he, you know, he had seen wrestling wars. He had been in political situations within wrestling, you know, his whole life, essentially. And uh, he was no pushover. He knew what needed to be done uh, in a lot of ways. But I think when you had someone like Vince McMahon, who had the money, who had this insatiable drive to, you know, to conquer and, and conquer wherever he could conquer and and take over parts of, of uh, you know, the, the wrestling landscape. Uh, I just, you know, Vince uh, Bergani was just outgunned. He was outmanned and the loss of his, his wrestlers. And, and if you think about all the wrestlers that Bergani trained over the years that eventually went to work for his competition, I mean, it's just unreal. Ric Flair being one of them, uh, you know, uh, Iron Sheik. I mean, there's just a long uh, list of, of wrestlers who Ganya himself personally trained or had a, a hand in help training and these wrestlers didn't uh you know stay within the AWA fold they actually went to work for opposing organizations uh, i think you know in, in terms of morale if i was Vern Gagne, i i would be completely despondent at just you know the loss of, of talent the loss of loyalty and just seeing you know my organization crumble the way it did and uh you know and, and, and Gagne was a tough guy he fought it uh, as long as he could but eventually, you know, the WWF won over and, and put him out of business. We mentioned earlier that one of your other books is Capital Revolution, which is the history of the McMahon family in wrestling, the history of Capital Wrestling, the parent organization of the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. You did that book and you've done this book. What do you see as the similarities and differences between Vince McMahon Sr. and Jr.? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I think they both had uh, an, uh, an innate drive to be successful. I mean, they both, and I think a, a lot of these qualities, I think uh, Vince McMahon Jr. learned from his father. I feel like, um, I think he had a, a, a tremendous vision, but at the same time, I think Vince McMahon Sr. also, he had this drive, but he played within the rules of professional wrestling. He uh, adhered to the gentleman's agreements. He didn't step outside of the the bounds of, you know, the NWA or you know, the different promotions. So when he hit his peak and got Madison Square Garden and kind of pulled this, you know, I think it was a 13 state territory into, you know, under his umbrella, 
there really wasn't a motivation to expand beyond that, even though he could have taken the war to his neighbors or done different things, or he could have tried to be, uh, you know, more, you know, more successful promoter. I think he appreciated what he had. And I feel like, you know, he respected professional wrestling within those limits. Vincent Van Jr. On the other hand, you know, he didn't see any limits. He didn't see the, the he didn't, uh, you know, respect the the handshake agreements of the old promoters and not to say that he had a personal vendetta against them, although it might've looked like that. He just was a businessman who was in the sport of, well, I guess in the, the field of sports entertainment and was going to branch out regardless of who liked it. So there was a lot of qualities that were similar between father and son, but you, you, you have to just step, step back and just be amazed at the tremendous vision of, Vince McMahon Jr. and even to what he's accomplished to this day. It's just astonishing. 1982 is a long time ago, so it's easy to forget. We look back now and we know Vince McMahon is what he is, this ultra-successful P.T. Barnum of his style of professional wrestling. But in 1982, 1983, 1984, he wasn't that. I mean, before 1982, how often would any of the other territories deal with Vince McMahon Jr.? when they did business with the New York office. Not that much. I mean, unless somehow someone was booking someone into Cape Cod, which wasn't happening, they really weren't dealing with him. So it wasn't like an established promoter, one of them, one of their club, was the one doing this. It was the son of one of them, who most people really didn't know that well. Yes, and I think that was even more of a, that was a a deeper dig for the the knife that was being stabbed into the back of these old promoters to to acknowledge that this young man, the son of, one of their colleagues, a colleague they had always respected and appreciated, and a man who, you know, Vince McMahon Sr. always brought kind of a wise voice to the NWA table or meetings of promoters. You know, he was a kind of a man everybody respected. To have his son now, you know, just step in and have this incredible idea of what he wanted to do for professional wrestling and all of them. Now, we're not just talking about a few of these promoters having to deal with this. We're talking about all of them are being affected by him you know, a little at a time, but eventually all of them were all being affected by them at the same time. And, uh, you know, I feel like these promoters, you know, they were helpless in a lot of ways. They kept, uh, you know, with Pro Wrestling USA and these other, you know, uh, ideas that they had to kind of combat McMahon, they were just at a complete and total loss. And McMahon was doing what he wanted to do based on his vision. And like I said, um, him being a, a, a junior and him being a, a, this young guy who, you know, wasn't, you know, a part of their clique to kind of be doing this, I think it just really pissed these promoters off all the more. What do you think are some of the biggest unanswered questions from this period of time? If we look specifically at the 1980s, what are some of the questions we still don't have answers for? Wow. Um, I mean, honestly, I, I this it, it goes up and down history for me. I mean, I, I would love, I wish more of these promoters would have written autobiographies. I wish Vern Gagne would have told this story. I just c- kind of wish we would have ever gotten a, a, just a detailed perspective of how they were dealing with this, how they were feeling, what they felt as some of these major uh, things were happening. And I think, I, you know, we could, we sit here and we talk about, you know, Vern Gagne was, you know, just seeing his world crumble and watching the AWA collapse. But what really was he thinking? Did he always have a positive attitude? I mean, was he depressed? Was, you know, and we look at up and down the line, Bob Geiger in Kansas City, you know, at the point when he realized, you know, he was going out of business, you know, what was he really thinking? Were there things that he could have done differently? 
you know, up and down the line. And, you know, going back through history, I've, I've come to this conclusion multiple times, you know, looking at the, you know, the decline of Fred Kohler in Chicago and even Jim Barnett, you know, his ups and downs throughout history. I mean, had these men written autobiographies or told their story in any detail, we would know what really was happening. So here we are as historians or, you know, researchers or fans and, you know, we're looking at all of the available information and reading books and absorbing everything we can. And we're lucky to have, you know, Ron Fuller and some of these other gentlemen out there today and Jim Cornette to tell us, you know, inside information. But I just, I feel like in a lot of ways, we lost a massive piece of history with a lot of these guys going to their graves without telling their stories. I guess that's one of the reasons why the Jack Pfeffer archive is so fascinating. And I haven't ever been able to go over there but I know some people who have, it just seems like he saved everything. Yeah. And I, I had the privilege of going there back in 2005 and I'd love to go back. I mean, it's just a, a wonderful, uh, just an uh, archive of history that we can go in and just see how these wrestlers and promoters, they corresponded with each other and, you know, how did, did they spoke and, and what their dealings were and, you know, financial records and just, yeah, everything he collected uh, it, it's just a, a wonderful, you know, if anybody gets a chance, uh, anybody that's seriously his, uh, in, uh, interested in the history of wrestling just has to go to the University of Notre Dame and, and check out the Pfeffer collection because it is just a, a, it's a godsend for for any real real fans of, of professional wrestling. I do research for 605. The research you do blows my research away. I have a feeling, Tim. Let me ask you something. Well, thank you. I've thank said you. it on the show. I've said that I think this is the golden age of wrestling research. What do you think? You know, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I've actually thought about this before. I think within the last 10 to 15 years, how far we've come in professional wrestling history and just how far, you know, historians and, and researchers have come in telling various points of history. You know, I can remember, you know, 10, 15 years ago when, you know, we, we didn't know anything about, uh, you know, the Department of Justice investigation. And then Chokehold came out and opened up that kind of door. And then, you know, that really was an eye-opener for, for me particularly, and that only fueled my fire to kind of not only, you know, see that documentation, but build upon that, and I was able to create the NWA book. And I just feel like so many, uh, you know, questions have been answered over the last 10, 15 years with, you know, better documentation and, you know, just stuff that's just been found and family sharing information. It, it really is a golden age, and it's just amazing how far we've come in, in such a short period of time. Chokehold is a fascinating book because you have that dichotomy of the first wrestling book with truly extraordinary research versus a somewhat outlandish and at times discredited story of Jim Wilson and his fumbles in and around a professional wrestling business. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you, you know, getting into that book, there's such a, like you said, a, you know, just this mixed match of, of information where you have the story of Jim Wilson, where he talks about you know, his career and, you know, you know, his relations with Jim Barnett, um, you know, the promise that, you know, he'll, you know, be NWA champion, all of that balanced against this tremendous history of, of the NWA, of the Department of Justice investigation, antitrust violations, court cases. I mean, it's just an unbelievable, Weldon Johnson did an unbelievable job. Um, he kind of opened the door, like I said, for for other researchers to follow in that kind of, uh, you know, those footsteps to kind of, you know, to, to, to find that information and to build upon it and share it with, with readers and interesting, uh, interested fans. 
So, I, you know, it is. That's a wonderful book. You just have to kind of walk a, a tightrope between, you know, the, the story of Jim Wilson and this tremendous history. The book is Death of the Territories, Expansion, Betrayal, and the War that Changed Pro Wrestling Forever by Tim Hornbaker from our good friends at ECW Press. I want to thank them. They're good people over there. Tim, before we go, this book obviously gets the highest possible recommendation uh, from me. I think this is an important historical book. I'm glad someone decided to tackle this error because it's very important, especially now, because we do have the opportunity, unlike doing research for the 40s and 50s, to really get a lot of firsthand conversations with people so we really need to get the ball rolling on capturing as much as we can from this period of time like i said highest possible recommendation death of the territories will wrestling fans be hearing from you again in the future i just want to say thank you brian uh absolutely um i'm going to be i'm currently working on a new book project that i'm very excited about i'll have information about this in the near future but i just want to tell you thank you again for your kindness of having me on it's been a real honor i love your work i love your show and uh, I just I hope uh, readers will give this book a chance and, and appreciate everything that I kind of put into it and, and just learn about a, a wonderful time in history. And uh, thank you again, Brian. I really appreciate it. Boom! There it is. Wrestling historian Tim Hornbaker, author of Book of the Week, Death of the Territories. We recommend everyone get this book. The highest possible recommendation from the Super Podcast. You can get it at tinyurl.com slash superpod. Amazon, Kurt, you have been tremendous again. Last minute, filling in the co-host chair. You will be back on very, very soon. I think we may have to have book reviews by the reincarnated Jerry Graham in the top 10 at some point. I don't know. We'll see. We've got a lot of reading to do up there in the skies. (laughs) Is that how it works? (laughs) What do you want to say here at the end of the show? Anything to the 605ers? Anything you want to plug? Uh, well, let's see. I would like to point you out, of course, as always, I want to point you out to LuchaWorld.com. Alfredo Esparza, one of the best Lucha historians ever, has a lot of good uh, items up there, including the Lucha World podcast. Uh, also, I started a page called the Pulpo Pages of Pro Wrestling. Uh, Pulpo spelled P-U-L-P-O. And that means that's Spanish for octopus. It's a show I have dedicated to Journeyman. And uh, the, the one who uh, sparked the idea was the California and Southwestern journeyman of the 30s and 40s, Jimmy El Pulpo. So please check it out on Facebook. Well, let me know if you find out any information about Gordo Chihuahua. We're still looking for more. I will do that. I will look. Yeah, not my dad actually recently asked me. He goes, you hear any more about Gordo Chihuahua? I said, <laughs> I said no, Dad. No one's heard of Gordo Chihuahua. Oh, as soon as we as soon as we get uh, the desktop up, I will search for him. I'm I, still searching for any evidence of somebody existing named Ace Womack that Dr. Jerry Graham told me about. Ah, that's cocksucker Reed. I even brought an Ace Womack for his shows, and he didn't show me any consideration. <laughs> Ace Womack. I've never heard that name before. Oh, man, so tough. Vince McMahon paid him $50,000 a year not to wrestle. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as we wrap things up here, a few notes here. Of course, you can keep in touch with the show on Twitter, at 605pod. You can follow me on Twitter, at GreatBrianLast. And you can follow the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network on Twitter, at SuperPodcasts. You can follow the SuperPodcasts on Facebook. Facebook.com slash superpodcast, the central hub for all super podcast social media. Facebook.com slash superpodcast. 
If you would like to support this show on Amazon, you can use tinyurl.com slash superpod. Amazon for all your purchases. You don't do anything differently than you would normally do. You don't spend any more than you would normally spend, but you support this show. tinyurl.com slash superpod. Amazon, other shows have links. Fuck those guys. Support the Super Podcast. Of course, you could also support the Super Podcast by wearing a t-shirt. We have Super Podcast logo t-shirts, Mothership logo t-shirts. We still have some Yo Mamba 605 t-shirts, as well as bumper stickers, other kinds of stickers, magnets, and much more. You can get all the official Super Podcast gear at tinyurl.com slash superpodstore. And you could also click the link that says shop here at the top of facebook.com slash superpodcast. If you appreciate this show, if you enjoy this show and everything that goes into it and appreciate that we don't have tons and tons of ads all over the place beating you over the fucking head with shit that you really don't want or need, quite frankly, well, then you can support this show financially. You don't have to, but if you'd like to, hey, we'd appreciate it. You can make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash superpodcast, or you can make an ongoing monthly donation at patreon.com slash superpodcast. Thank you very much to everyone who has been supporting this show. Thank you to all the patrons. I think you all know recently how much I do appreciate everything you've done to supporting this show. Thank you to all the secret millionaires out there. I haven't mentioned you in a while, but we really do appreciate you supporting the Super Podcast. Of course, you can find the 605 Super Podcast on iTunes. If you enjoy it, please leave a review and a five-star rating. It really does help the show out. If you don't like iTunes, you can access every single episode of the Super Podcast as well as our RSS feed directly at 605pod.com. This episode of the 605 Super Podcast was sponsored by Ramsor Records, R-A-M-S-E-U-R, Ramsor Records. Don't forget Samantha Crane on tour. Check her out when she comes to your town. We want to invite you to check out the other fine shows on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Of course, the newest one, The Non-Fans Guide to Wrestling. Three British fans, or non-fans, I should say, sit down and watch wrestling, past and present, discussing the most ridiculous things in wrestling history. You can get that at nonfanpod.com or search for The Non-Fans Guide to Wrestling on iTunes, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Of course, Travis Bowden's Kentucky Fried Wrestling, Breaking Kayfabe with Baldrin and Barry, Ron Fuller's Studcast, and Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam and Sean Goodwin, all available wherever you find your favorite podcasts, all a part of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. If you want to send anything into the Super Podcast, you can do so. Send it to the 605 Super Podcast, P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. That's the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership, P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. The 605 Super Podcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network for Vandal Drummond. I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho! What about the? I got one for you. How about this? The I got one for you. How about this one? Okay, check this out. You have a soundbite. Don't call.
Or your weed might fall off. <laughs> Wait, play that again, please. Oh, one more time. Hey, girl. <laughs> don't fall. Or your weed might fall off. <laughs> Hold on. Who is that? And what are they saying? Are they saying, hey, girl, don't fall. Your wig might fall off? Uh, I'll play one more time and then I'll interpret. <laughs> this is a man named Lorenzo Holden. Okay. Lorenzo Holden. Hey, hey, girl. Don't cough or your wig might fall off. Don't cough <laughs> or your wig might fall off. Hey, girl, don't cough or your wig might fall off. What? He's a singer? Yeah, yeah. He has an instrumental an instrumental single, a fairly obscure one called The Wig on CJM Records. And this is, um, if I'm looking at the uh, record label here, instrumental number one. And this is the plug side for you people in the in the radio industry. This was the uh, this was the pick hit, The Wig. So it's almost completely an instrumental, except for the introduction where I assume it's Lorenzo Holden saying, one more time. Hey, girl, don't call or your weed might fall off. <laughs> That's hey. a good intro. Here's, here's one I like better. Hello, Lucille. Are you a lesbian? <laughs> Do you like to go to bed with women? Yeah. Come on, Lucille, right now. For those of you who don't know, that's T. Valentine, Hello Lucille, Are You a Lesbian? A classic yeah. song for a number of reasons. One is, it's awful, but it's great. The second is, what a twist the song has. He's calling up Lucille, who he wants to be with, but she's a lesbian. Right. But then it turns out his sister is a lesbian. Yes. You, 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 you lesbian. <laughs> Hold on, let me play some of this. When I calls, when I try to kiss her, she says she got a cold. When I want to make love... She got female trouble or that other thing that women have every month. Hold on. She's got female trouble or, or that, that other, other thing. thing that fe- what's the other thing? <laughs> what's the fe- <laughs> <laughs> What the fuck is he talking about? Maybe maybe he uh maybe he explains it a little further along. Oh no, I as I recall he doesn't explain it anything. She always wear pants, long pants. I never seen on your dress, a skirt. When we go out, it's like two men out together. <laughs> she wears her hair cut short, like mine. She don't have any tits. She don't wear makeup and high heels. <laughs> it just, it nope. just goes right off the cliff. Yeah, yeah. She don't have any tits. She don't wear makeup. <laughs> Why is he dating her? <laughs> but if I fast forward, hold on. And that last bit and whisper it out. Why do he take her out? I hate all lesbians. I hate all lesbians. Simple time back. That was recorded. Well, let me get to the end so you can hear the big twist. By the way, thank you, Norton Records. Let me, let me say that. Give them a plug yeah. before we continue. This is from Norton Records. A record label I have always supported, and I know Scott does too. Check this out. Uh, free plug to them. I want a woman, all woman, and from now on, from now on, when I take a woman out, waste time. I'm gonna find out if she a woman, and we men know how that's done. I don't want to see or hear a lesbian, cause my sister is a lesbian. What a, what a twist there at the end. You know, 
one of the coolest things, and it was just so off topic, but years ago, <laughs> you got me and my cousin Alex into CT Valentine when he came up to New York and performed these songs that yes. were somehow discovered by Miriam Lennon and Billy Miller at Norton Records. And he played the, um, oh, fuck. Friars Club. He played the Friars Club, and you got us in there to see it. And it was such an interesting event, but I'll never forget the way he introduced the song. He goes, are you ready for the hit? Do you want the hit? The hit. That's right. The hit. Well, believe me, everyone in that room <laughs> was ready for the hit and recognized, hello, Lucille, are you lesbian? as the hit yeah it, it inexplicable uh all the way along the line and, and it relates to wrestling and the certainly wrestling fans love to find these really off the wall uh you know hard to remember uh, uh angles or wrestlers or just things that come out of nowhere that just blow your mind uh so it's completely crazy that he was out there sincerely doing these records. I don't even think trying to be funny, you know, over, you know, from the late sixties into the early seventies, every so often. Oh, longer than that. Cause wh yeah, yeah. when, when is this one from? Woo! Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like mean Gene. Yeah, right. Just wait for the lyrics. All right, well, <laughs> yeah. that's all the T Valentine we'll be playing today he here on the show. T Valentine, but it's just so crazy that, uh, you know, he did stuff in the whenever, the 50s or 60s, then the 70s, then the crazy Lucille record. And then 30 years after that, somehow we see him in the Friars Club. <laughs> I did. Sometimes you just have to sit there and go, is this really happening? <laughs> and he wore a cape like Dracula. Yeah. Cause he had, cause he had written a, a play called the vampire. So the presentation was some sort of multimedia thing, uh, where, uh, my friends, uh, great band, daddy long legs backed him musically. And then all kinds of people, including Miriam and, uh, Howie Pyro and, uh, the great crazy, uh, painter, Joe Coleman, all took part. It was a sort of multimedia thing. It was a, <laughs> if we haven't lost everybody entirely from our audience right now, <laughs> it was a, 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 it was a play called the vampire uh, where he played the vampire. They had dancing girls that were the vampire's victims. Meanwhile, daddy long legs is playing this raw blues music behind him. Every so often during the middle of the play, uh, he would sing Betty Sue or hello, Lucille or his hit or what have you. There was a lot of smoke in the room, as I recall. <laughs> Completely surreal and, uh, and a very uh, memorable, strange uh, event in uh, wrestling history. <laughs> Hello, Lucille. Are you a lesbian? Do you like to go to bed with women? McCall, Lucille. All right. <laughs> it would be, well, be great if you could do one of those old-fashioned Dick Clark reviews and you'd have... Uh, <laughs> 
T Valentine and then Lorenzo Holden would come out and do this. Hey girl! <laughs> don't call! Or your wig might fall off! Here comes the song. <laughs> The wig. 